morning, you all. <clears throat> Good morning and Shabbat Shalom. Hi, Jessica. How are you? Hi, Hillary. Good to see you. Good. Hi. Thank you. Well. Hi, Dan and Jennifer. Good to see you. Hi, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Hi, Heather. Good to see you. All right. Let's see here. Let's admit a few more people. Hope you enjoyed uh, Oklahoma while you were here. Uh, hey, you know, hey, it was great, actually. I did enjoy Oklahoma. It was great. And, you know, I really enjoyed uh, Hi, Heather. Good morning. Shabbat shalom. My friend. Shabbat shalom. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Lois. Shabbat shalom. Hey, John. How are you? Good to see you, brother. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Hi, Irene. Shabbat you're outside. Great. Everyone, Daniel and Pamela, good to see you. Let's keep adding. Yeah, we um, we went to the new museum in Oklahoma City, right? Called the First American Museum. I don't know if you've been there. Just yeah. open. Anyway, a very incredible museum and uh, very informative, too. Very informative, you know, uh, talking about the various tribes in Oklahoma and some of the tribal wisdom, you know, which was neat, very neat. Hey, Doug's with us. Hi, Doug. Good morning, Doug. Good to see you. Let's see. Yeah. I don't know if Tina's going to win. Hi, Gabriella. Sunshine, sunshine. Shabbat shalom. Hey, yeah, yeah, you've got sunshine. I know it's late there. And the sun the sun doesn't set anymore, right? We're, we've gone into the long day of summer. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Okay. We're still admitting as people come in. Here Shabbat comes shalom. Hi, John. Hey. Hey, brother, how are you? Doing well, doing very well. Thank you very much. Vernacular. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, John and I were both uh, missionaries in Russia. He was in there longer than I was. So, but, um, and it's good to be a missionary. You know, it's good. It's a good thing to do at some point in your life to be a missionary. Let's see. All right. Shabbat shalom. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. Good to Hi. see you. Hi, Shane. Good to see you, my friend. Shabbat shalom, Doc. Let's see what we're what we going to do. People coming in here. Here we go. Shabbat shalom, Stephen. Shabbat shalom, Mr. There's Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Okay, let's see. I think we got Ipa in. Ipa and Corey. Um, okay. Oh, no, we're getting Okay, here we go. Now we're getting there. All right. So we got just a few more people to go. So once we break 100, we'll, we'll start praying and, and embark on our course. Hey, good morning, Randall. How are you? Good morning to you, brother. Shout out so to I'm, I'm see having you. a challenging morning, but it's, it's good. Uh, it's one of those, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, these, I know, I know those mornings, man. They sometimes you wake up and it's just like, Hey, wait a minute, you know, well, let's go back to bed and try this thing again. Right. Exactly. It's like, get off my back, please. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, but you know, uh, the, the thing is, is that sometimes with, um, with just giving praise and giving thanks mm -hmm. and mentioning the name of Yahweh in the morning, the, uh, the demons that want to hang around in your living room, you know, and at the foot of your bed. I got your number, buddy. I think my <laughs> socks are going to fit, right? 
Right, right. No, 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 no. Those guys have to go away. All right, come on, Virginia. I know we can get you in here. There we go. All right, I think we have Virginia and Walt now. All right, so we're over 102. So let's go ahead and begin with some prayer here, and we'll see if we can bathe our conversation today in the Ruach HaKodesh. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this morning. We give thanks to your name. We praise you in all things and exalt you over all. May you be our king, our lawgiver, and our judge in these times. Father, we want to be your children. We want you to be our Elohim. You've given us a covenant of distinction for that reason and have renewed that covenant in the blood of your son, Yahusha. We claim this, Father. We do these things in remembrance of you undertaking the blood of Yahusha to be part of your family, that we would be united with you, that the door of the throne room would be open to us, that there would no longer be a veil in the temple, but that we would have immediate access to you and in your name. And we lift our petitions to you, knowing that the Ruach HaKodesh lifts these prayers to you like a fine incense with groans before your throne. Hear our prayers, Father, and be with us today in spirit and in truth to guide our words and to guide our hearts that we would express love for one another, not animosity or competition or uh, one-uppedness, but rather love for one another as we discuss these things before you, that your word would be heard and not our words. We praise you in all things. Holy, holy, holy are you. And the whole world is filled with your name and your glory. In the name of Yahusha, amen, amen. Amen. And so, my friends, I had to, I missed out on last week because we were out in the Wichita Reserve. And when we got out into the Wichita Reserve, we had to, I was screaming at my daughter, you got to get back into bandwidth for at least a few minutes so that I can talk to, uh, so I can talk to Shell so she can handle things, right? So it was an emergency setting that we were kind of running around the Wichita reserves as Donald and Alicia will tell you is absolutely beautiful it's a beautiful area in Oklahoma and of course you know the wind comes whipping down the plane boy ain't that the truth but uh yeah but you know we uh but we had the chance to see the beauty of the reserve and you know the bison herds and the longhorn herds that were running there and uh, we went into what's called the parallel forest which was a forest built to fight back the dust bowl in Oklahoma that had happened in the 30s. And it was an attempt to plant cedars, you know, to see what would happen, manage that. And we also had a chance to go to the first American museum, which is a museum dedicated to the tribes in Oklahoma. And the tribes in Oklahoma have gone through an interesting genocide, if you will. And it really does give you an indication, and I'm not trying to say the tribes are perfect by any respect, but I do believe that many of these tribes are the tribes of Israel. Uh, in particular, the, the Cherokee. Uh, but you also, we also saw many of the teaching from the from the Kiowa, the Comanche, and the Apache uh, that had teachings about the history of their tribes and what they went through. We went to Geronimo's grave, for instance, at Fort Sill, and you know the the what was happening in the United States was that uh, we came in and we had an idea of how to live, and our idea of how to live was to live as they did in England. Well, England had developed its lifestyle over a series of centuries based upon the fact that they were on a wet, 
cold island. And so much of what they did depended on their seafaring, depended on them reaching out in commerce and doing other things. In North America, there was a different lifestyle that was altogether. And in fact, you know, they, these uh, prove, in fact, that the tribe messages and the history prove that some of the tribes that were along the St. Lawrence Waterway and in the Great Lakes were quite advanced. And they had, they had well-established villages in almost cities that were, you know, they had uh, stockades around them. They had these big wigwam buildings that they used to uh, house in. And of course, the, the plains, the tribes were different in that they were migrating uh, along with the buffalo. Uh, but the Comanche, excuse me, not the Comanche, the Cherokee, we had made a promise to the Cherokee. Now the Cherokee had been in America at least since around 300 AD, at least according to Stephen Collins, the Cherokee had come to America as the house of Issachar from what used to be Carthage. Now you might recall that Carthage, which is now modern day Tunisia and Libya, was at one time the breadbasket for Western Rome. It was the California of Rome, if you will. It grew all, all the food. And the reason it grew all the food is because it was the house of Israel who had left the Northern Kingdom before the Assyrian conquering in 722 BC. Many of them had left, had already moved west into this area of Libya and Tunisia and also into Spain and some even up into Ireland and Wales, Scotland and France, these tribes had, had already left and they were using the agricultural practices of the Torah. And by using the agricultural practices of the Torah and the methods taught, they were able to sustain agriculture in Libya and Tunisia and were feeding Rome. But Carthage, of course, got rich and also got arrogant. And as typical with the House of Israel, they engaged in Molech worship and some of the other worship, but primarily Molech worship. They were passing their children through the fire to Molech. And so you had what's called the Punic Wars. There were three wars between Carthage and Rome. And you might recall that Hannibal in the second Punic War defeated Rome, crossing over the Swiss Alps with elephants and coming down and destroying Rome. Well, this was a big turning point, but Carthage did not do what uh, conquering armies from Rome would do, which is to put up the Roman banner. Carthage instead secured a victory and then went home and allowed the Romans to rebuild and the Romans did rebuild and they went back to Carthage and defeated them in the third war. And when they defeated them, they salted the earth of Carthage. So Carthage, the ancient ruin of Carthage, which can be found uh, in Tunisia, in the city of Tunis, in Tunisia, that ancient ruin uh, was salted, the earth was salted. Well, the Romans foolishly, this is something that the Romans have, have always done. They foolishly committed suicide because they killed off their food source by destroying the Carthaginian empire. Well, the Carthaginians, in anticipation of this war, they put 30 ships at sea carrying uh, the House of Issachar and its leaders into uh, the Gulf of Mexico and up into Alabama. There's a waterway that runs up there. And they went up, they went up this waterway up in the middle of Alabama 
And they decided, okay, we're farther enough north in Alabama, we're going to build our villages here. And so the Cherokee, the Shakari, they began to establish themselves in South Central Tennessee, Northern Georgia, Northern Alabama, Northern Mississippi. Now, this would be called the Cherokee Nation, and the Cherokee Nation was admitted as a nation. In other words, the United States granted the Cherokees sovereignty over this area in the early 1800s. But Andrew Jackson did not care for that arrangement. He called it a treaty, not an agreement of sovereignty. And when they realized they wanted that land, they kicked the Cherokee out. When they kicked the Cherokee out, they were placed onto what's called the Trail of Tears. And the Trail of Tears was a forced march, much like the Armenian genocide that has just been recognized in Turkey. They did a forced march of, of the Cherokee people out of Tennessee and marched them out to Oklahoma. Now, when they did this, they took this land then and did the same thing they did in Ireland. Now, Ireland in the 1600s under King James, they had a uh, very similar tactic that they used there, which was called the Ulster Plantations. And in the Ulster Plantations, King James decided, well, we want to extend dominion over Northern Ireland, which at that time was pretty much, you know, you had, you had a few cities that had been established like uh, Belfast, like Derry, and which were port cities. But for the most part, the rest of Northern Ireland was undeveloped. And so they allowed homesteaders to come into Northern Ireland and they told them, you know, you survey the land and it's yours. Well, that's fine. They surveyed the land with Irish people living on the land. And then they would come in and say, well, I have a perfected title from King James, get off, either get off or pay rent. And so the Irish who were living in the wilderness outside the cities in Northern Ireland, who were living in their little houses on various plots were suddenly incorporated into these plantations and made renters. And this was called the Ulster Plantation. And there were two Scottish families, the Montgomery's and the Harris family that had gone in and really, you know, taken a lot of land in Northern Ireland. But King James had allowed all kinds of other Scotsmen to come in and do the same thing. So, when you see uh, when you see what is now Northern Ireland, this became kind of a Scottish British uh, plantation, if you will, taken from the indigenous Irish, and the Irish were forced out. Many of them forced into uh, really a lifetime of poverty in uh, areas like uh, County Mayo and, and County Galway and so forth. So this same protocol was then used by Andrew Jackson in Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi to force the Cherokee out and then to allow homesteading in that area. Now, the irony of that is that all the sons of those families who took that land from the Cherokee would then find themselves dying in a civil war that broke out 30 years later between the North and the South. And, you know, Sherman's March began up in South Central Tennessee and at Kennesaw Mountain, and he marched down over the top of those Confederate troops to Atlanta, where he burned the city, and then continued to march all the way to Savannah, burning a swath 
all the way down from central Tennessee to Savannah, right through the middle of what used to be the Cherokee Nation. The Cherokee, in the meantime, barely survived the expatriation from Tennessee to Oklahoma. Now, Oklahoma, Oklahoma is a Comanche word meaning red man, red man. And so you see that uh, in Oklahoma, there were many tribes that were patriated there or expatriated. The Apache were expatriated there. The Comanche were expatriated there, the Seminole and the Shakari, the Cherokee. And so they were given tribal land in Oklahoma, home of the red man. They were given tribal lands. And this tribal land expanded throughout the state of Oklahoma. Then, of course, that agreement was breached. No more tribal lands. And here's how they got rid of them. You guys can each have the land your house is on, but there's not going to be any more land owned by the tribe. And so they had a saying, you know, uh, kill, the, kill the red man, but don't kill the Indian, right? Kill the Indian, but don't kill the man. They wanted to extinguish the Indian culture entirely and to integrate the tribe members into the American culture. But the tribes were resistant to that and they protected their language. Now, by protecting their language, when it came time for us to fight World War II, one of the things that allowed us to have victory over the Germans was the fact that we had our messages being delivered in Comanche, in Kiowa, in Cherokee. They were, they were uh, the, called the code breakers. These guys who were all in the American military You'd have an Apache at one end of this line, an Apache at the other end, or a Cherokee at one end, a Cherokee at the other, and they'd be speaking in their native language, and the Germans had no chance of decoding it. No chance, no chance of understanding it. And so it worked very effectively for us in World War II. One out of nine of the males in the tribes in Oklahoma would join the U.S. military. One out of nine. It's the most uh, uh, you know, significant ethnicity in the U.S. military. There's no higher percentage uh, than American in the U.S. military. So at any rate, so you see these factors. Now, the tribes have since kind of regained uh, a little bit of self-esteem. And they're trying to, once again, reestablish themselves as tribes. And of course, the tribal culture is one that lived differently on the land. Uh, and so because they lived differently on the land, they had a different kind of concept that's right. Yeah, the Cherokee. Actually, it was, um, yeah, Jessica, it was not only the Cherokee, it was, um, there was another tribe too that because, and during the genocide, of course, you know, in the 1847 to 1850 genocide in Ireland. And this is a very important point to remember too, that when you get into what took place in Ireland, the, again, this was under uh, United Kingdom control, that you know, with King James doing the Ulster Plantation in Northern Ireland. Now, this is followed, this followed Henry VIII when Henry VIII abolished Catholicism in the United Kingdom. Okay? He abolished it. When he did, he went into Ireland and the schools of learning in Ireland in the 1530s were the abbeys. This is where all the kids were taught. And Ireland was reputed uh, to be really the seat of knowledge in Europe because Rome had not done much to Ireland. And that's why Ireland was able to retain its knowledge base because Rome had just kind of never got around to conquering it. They did with St. Patrick, 
but that was just St. Patrick. And so anyway, Henry VIII comes in and says, okay, look, we're abolishing Catholicism. So from 1535 until 1834, if you were a Catholic, you could not maintain a birth record. You could not maintain a marital record. You could not maintain a death record. They, they were abolished. And they burned down all of the abbeys in Ireland so that they had no places of education. So you can see that the Catholics in Ireland were like, well, wait a minute, you're, you know, you're completely destroying our culture. Well, that was the first aspect of it, what, King, what Henry VIII had done. Now, following uh, King James's son, Charles I, in the 1830s and 1840s, Charles I wanted to push England back into Catholicism. And Oliver Cromwell rose up and said, that's treason. And they beheaded him for that, because they had said, you're trying to push us back into, under the superiority of the Pope. You're trying to push us back under the tenure of the Pope. That's treason. They beheaded him. Now, Oliver Cromwell then came into the Republic of Ireland and was absolutely ruthless. He was absolutely ruthless. Any Irish that he found claiming that they were Catholic, he would basically take away everything they had and said, you can go live up on these rocks over here. Or you can go live on this beach that has nothing. And so he too enforced a genocide against the Irish Catholics. So the Irish Catholics are looking at this going, okay, well, this is pretty nasty. This is pretty bad. In 1834, the Catholics were emancipated. They could start keeping birth and marital records again. But in 1847, a decision was made that uh, there was, you know, the so-called famine. And this famine wasn't a famine at all. There was plenty of food in Ireland. But all the food was owned by British plantation owners. And they shipped all the food back into the United Kingdom. And so the, the farmers who were working on the farm, you know, these Irish who were working in these little plots of land, You've seen them, you know, when you look at the pictures of Ireland, you'll see that there's little rock rings around maybe a quarter of an acre. And this is where the Irish farmer would be forced to live. You live here. And they were told, you know, you eat what you have. And so they would they'd eat the potatoes that they had on that little plot of land. Well, a blight came in in 1847 and killed the potato crop. And so when it did, the Irish began to die from famine. And in 1848, it came back again, the same blight. There was plenty of food, but the food was all being shipped into Britain, all of it. And there was a guy named Duvalier uh, who was working with the prime minister, who when he heard of the famine said, well, this will take care of that Irish problem, right? Now, somebody asks here, it was the Choctaws, yeah, it was the Choctaws, that's right. And the Choctaws, you know, had experienced their own genocide, Jessica. They had experienced their own genocide. So anyway, so what happens is uh, in 1847 and 1848, the famine ships arrive in Dublin and in Cork. And these famine ships are taking anybody who wanted to get on these ships and taking them to the New World to work as bond servants. Now, this is a part of Irish history that the Irish republics, the people in the Irish Republic, many of them will deny it. They just deny it. Okay, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Because many of the men came to Canada 
as bond servants, and they came to the United States as bond servants. I'll pay your way here, and then you're going to work for me for seven years to pay off that that baggage that I paid to get you here. They also went to Australia and New Zealand, by the way, the Irish. And so you had 25, I want to say 25 million, that can't be right. There were about about a half of the population left Ireland, and they left on these famine ships. Now, 25% of them would die at sea. Because you have to remember, you're talking about starving people who were extremely thin at this point, very frail. Their immune systems are compromised. And they get on a ship, and they're on a ship for three months crossing the Atlantic or longer getting to Australia, and they die. So there was a huge attrition there. But what's not told is that many of the men got on the famine ships and left their wives behind with the hope that they would get to the, to the new land, make enough money to bring their wife and children over on, on a freighter themselves. This was their prayer, this was their idea. Well, many of those women never got on a famine ship. They never got out of Ireland. And so there was another trade that had broken out, which was selling Irish women into slavery in the Caribbean. And so many, many Irish women were sold to the slave owners in the Caribbean. And the slave owners in the Caribbean did this because they would pay prime money for an African slave. Then instead of buying another slave, they would buy one or two Irish girls who would then mate with the slaves. And then they would have a dozen new slaves for which they paid no money. Now, this went on significantly in the Caribbean and created you know, the vast majority of the slaves that would then be imported into the United States were coming from this crossbreeding of Irish slave girls and African slaves. Now, one of the families that participated in that slave trade was Kamala Harris's family in Jamaica. They participated in that slave trade and in that methodology. So the Irish don't want to talk about that. Oh, no, our, our women were never sold as, as slaves in the Caribbean. Well, yes, they were. And they can deny it all they want, but that's what happened. And so you see this, this massive history. Now, after the famine finally ended in 1850, you can see why the Irish would say, okay, no more. This was three times by Britain. We can no longer have a Britain, British control over the Republic because you know every 50 years they're going to engage in a genocide. And this is why the Choctaw in Oklahoma, who saw this, because the Choctaw had gone through something very similar, they raised money on their own and send it to Ireland because knowing what the famine was doing, right? And uh, significant moment when you think about it. Now, thing is, is that this tribal history now, so we see that this business of stomping on the tribes now, so somebody asked the question, what tribe are the Irish? Well, the Irish have an interesting history uh, because Ireland, I think was initially populated by the tribe of Dan, right? So in Ireland, they talk about the Tuatha de Danon, the Tuatha, who are legendary, the Tuatha de Danon. Well, that's the tribe of Dan, Dan. And the tribe of Dan would be coming there in sailing vessels and establishing themselves on the north part of the island, you know, the Giant's Causeway up there near Derry, and also in Northern Scotland 
and also in Denmark and Norway and Sweden. This would be populated by the house of Don. Now at this time when Don was coming there, I think it was a little bit warmer climate. There it wasn't the Greenland that we have today. And uh, so Don was there initially. And you can see that Don would say, well, look, we're gonna go up and we're gonna see what we can find in resources for Solomon or for the king or for the house of Israel. Let's go see what we can find. And so there was ex exploration by the house of Don, particularly in the Black Sea, where the house of Don would go up, the Danube would go up, the Don Nestor would go up, the Don Nepper, and would go up the Don rivers, right? And John, you know about the Don, you know, Rostov the Danu, right? Rostov on the Don River, that, uh, you know, if you go up those, any of those rivers, in some cases you can go up 100 miles, but on the Danube, you can go up 300 miles. And to this day, you will find villages and cities named after the house of Don. Now, Don's mark was placed on the country that would become Denmark, right? The house of Don. But Don was there for a while in Scotland and in Ireland, but there would be other people that would come in. So in Northern Ireland, the Picts, or excuse me, in Scotland, the Picts would come in on the Eastern seaboard. And in Southern Scotland, there was something remarkable that happened. And it happened, so the, tri the house, the Tuatha Dé Danann, you're talking about, you know, 1500 to 1600 BC. Shortly after that, the house of Zorak, the house of Zorak comes in. Now, the house of Zorak, uh, remember that Zorak was the firstborn of Judah, right? So Judah, Yehuda, he, uh, the story goes, he had, he went and married a Canaanite woman. Now this was anathema, right? We know the story of Esau and Jacob and Esau was grievous to his parents, Yitzhak and Rivka. He was grievous to them because he had married two Canaanite women. And, he, and so, so Yaakov is told, go find a woman of our house. And so he goes up to Laban and he, to marry Raquel, but he ends up marrying Leah and then Raquel. And he is telling his sons, do not take a wife of the Canaanite women. Nonetheless, Yehuda, the lion, he takes a Canaanite wife. And he takes a Canaanite wife and he has three sons with his Canaanite wife. Well, he decides that he's going to pick out a Hebrew woman for his sons to be their wife. And so he gets someone from, from his house, from his tribe, Tamar, and he brings her there. And his oldest son says, I'm not interested in that Hebrew woman, not touching her. And the story says, Yad kills him right there. You're done. And so the second son is told under Moshe's Torah command, you must raise seed to your brother because she was betrothed to your brother. You must raise seed for your brother. And he says, yeah, yeah, right. So he takes her as a wife, doesn't touch her because he doesn't want to have anything to do with Tamar. Boom, he's dead. So now Tamar is like, well, what now? And Yehuda goes to her and says, well, you know, I've got my third son. Yeah, but he's like 12 years younger than me. Well, wait for him to grow up and you can marry him. Tamar's like, yeah. All right, okay. So she sits around waiting. And when 
the, the youngest son gets to an age to marry a woman, he marries someone else. So Tamar is like, oh, this isn't working very well. Now Yehuda, whose wife had died, decides to go up to some village. I think he was going up to Las Vegas, frankly. Las Vegas and uh, you know, Damascus. And he goes up there to shear sheep, supposedly. Well, Tamar knows about it. And so she goes up there and dresses up like a prostitute standing on the side of the road. And Yehuda comes up and says, hey, baby, how much? Right? The Honorable Yehuda. Hey, baby, how much? Right? And she says, well, you know, you can pay me with your staff, your ring, and your, and your cloak. Oh, okay. So then they all come back to Yehuda's house. And in a couple months, guess what? Tamar's really showing. Why is she really showing? Because she's pregnant with twins. And so everybody comes to, comes to Yehuda and says, hey, your daughter-in-law, who was supposed to be waiting to get married, is pregnant. She must have committed adultery. And what did Yehuda say? Let her burn. That's what he said. Let her burn. And so she comes in and he and she looks at Yehuda and she says, well, before you burn me, uh, let me tell you who the father is. Here's his cloak, here's his staff, and here's his ring. And Yehuda goes, uh, 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 he, he gads, right? And so he admitted that he was the father and that Tamar being the, his natural Hebrew wife, would give birth to his lineage, which is Zarak and Ferez. Now, Ferez is the line from which Mashiach would come. Ferez is the line from which David would come. Ferez is the line from which Solomon would come. Ferez is the line from which all of the kings of Yasharel would come through Ferez. None of these Canaanite sons, but from the sons of Tamar. But what goes without talking about speaking is Zerak. Now, so during the birth, something interesting happens, which is that the midwives are there waiting for the birth of the twins, and first, out comes a hand. So the hand, quote-unquote, breaks the matrix. So when the hand breaks the matrix, you see that uh, the midwives tie a red ribbon around that hand, and then that hand is withdrawn. Now, if you look in, in Northern Ireland, they have a marking up in Ulster. And the marking they have up in Ulster is a red hand, right? Now they think it's the red hand of this side or the other, but actually it's the red hand of Zarak. Now, so this red ribbon is tied around the right hand of Zarak and then the hand is withdrawn and then Ferez comes out and the midwives are like, how did, how did this kid pull this off? Because the firstborn, the one who broke the matrix, Zarak, would be the primogenitor. He has the right to the inheritance, right? But yet Ferez becomes the Yahid, the Yahid. And uh, uh, we can talk, I'll, I'll come back to the Yahid. Let me write that down, I'll get back to that. We'll talk about the Yahid here in just a bit. So, um, but anyway, so Zarak, there's only two mentions of Zarak's progeny in scripture. And one is a mislabeling, okay? So at one point in Second Kings, you have a discussion of these sons, right? And these sons are, uh, you know, uh, Etanim, Haman, Kalkol, Darda, and Zimri, right? And these are the sons, and then in Second Kings, they say, these are the sons of Mahol, 
Now, when I was teaching Hebrew last uh, Wednesday, we were studying the Mem, the Mem, and the Mem Sophie. And as we were studying those, I showed this sons of Mahol as an example of where the Hebrew readers were not correctly dividing the word because Mem is oftentimes a prefix and sometimes a suffix. So when it's a suffix, you know, like Elohim, you have this idea that the name Elohim is a masculine plural, a masculine plural. But at the beginning, when you have the name, it can be a, a prefix meaning from, from, or of. So when you look at this, well, these are the sons of Machol. Well, when you read in Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles tells you categorically, oh no, these aren't the sons of Machol. These are the sons of Zerach. These same children are the sons of Zerach. So what's this Mahol? Well, Mahol is actually the prefix name and the word whole, whole, which means round dancing. So they were the sons of round dancing. Now, in particular, I don't know if you guys have ever seen, have you guys ever seen the uh, whirling dervishes uh, of Turkey? They call themselves the whirling dervishes. I don't know if you've ever seen them. But these are Turkish dancers, mostly from Cappadocia. And they have on these long robes and they sit there and spin. And I'm telling you, you know, I could do about three of those and I'd fall over in a dizzy spell and they'd have to hospitalize me, you know. But these guys can go for 20 minutes sitting there spinning in a circle, right? And they're called the, and they're called the whirling dervishes. So if you ever get a chance to look that up, you can see what I'm talking about. But the, the sons of Machol were actually the sons of round dancing. Now, these sons of round dancing would become extremely important. And it's very interesting because I don't think Zimri is listed in the Second Chronicles listing. He, he appears in the, in the Second Kings listing, but not in Second Chronicles. But we do see Zimri appearing in the Exodus, the house of Zimri. Now, so here's what becomes important. Zerach, uh, when, the, when the whole of the house of Israel was moved to Egypt because of the famine, after they were there living under Joseph, remember that Joseph died and the Pharaoh did not remember Joseph after that. Well, the house of Zerach began to leave immediately. And Calcol, one of the sons of Zerach, went north and formed the city of Athens. Darda went north and formed the city of Troy. Etanim went west and formed the city of Cadiz in Spain. Haman also went into Greece, but Zimri and only Zimri remained behind. Only Zimri remained behind. So of, of the whole of the house of Zarak from the house of Judah, only the house of Zimri would go with Moses in the Exodus. And if you recall, when they got to, when they crossed the Jordan into the promised land, they were instructed, when you knock down Jericho, you kill everything, every man, woman, animal, everything. And don't touch any of their goods because it's all corrupted. Well, <clears throat> one guy went in and stole some of the stuff. And so a curse befell the house of Israel because one guy had stolen stuff. Well, ultimately, Joshua found out who he was. And they put him to death, but he was uh, the son of the house of Zimri who had done that. 
the son of the house of Zimri from the house of Zarak. Now, Calcol, and if you look up the history of Athens, they will tell you that it was this Calcol who had formed Athens. Calcol had a son, and his son's name was Galathus. And Galathus came back, he, he amassed a huge army and came back into Egypt to challenge Pharaoh. Scripture des describes him as taking the name I, A-I. And you, you will see it, and there's an even greater discussion in the book of Jasher about this, about A-I, I coming in. But Galathus made his attempt to, to uh, overthrow Egypt, and they decided, okay, we're not going to do that, we're going to move on. And so he moved the whole of his house, again, through Libya, right, which become Carthage, into Morocco, from Morocco into the Iberian Peninsula. Now, the Iberian Peninsula, the western coast of the Iberian Peninsula, is called Lusitania, Lusitania. And the tribe of Galathus became known as the tribe of Gaul, Gaul. And so Galathus would come into the Iberian Peninsula and he would populate along the coast north of Cadiz and they would form a port city called the Port of Gaul or Portugal, Portugal. And these Galathians would also populate Northern Spain and Western France and then up into Ireland and even up into Scotland. So they were called Gauls or Gaelic people. Galatia was an area that included mostly Western France, around like where La Rochelle is, and Northern Spain. This was Galatia. This is most likely to whom Paul was writing in the book of Galatians. He wasn't writing to some camp in the middle of Turkey. He was writing to the Gaelic people, the Gauls, who at that time were mostly in Western France. Okay, it's a very important distinction because people don't want to talk about what was really going on with the Galatians. So at any rate, so now you see the Gaelic people before Moshe's exit out of Egypt in 1492 BC, the Gaelic people had begun populating the island of Ireland and into Scotland and to some extent into Wales and southwestern England. They're mistakenly called Celtic people. They weren't Celtic people. The Celts came from a different migration at a later time, okay? And the Celtic people always had a significant influence on what happened in Europe. In fact, the Celtic people dominated Central Europe for many, many centuries. The dominant language in Central Europe was the Celtic language. And the Celtic language was built upon what we call the Paleo-Hebrew today. Although it was an advanced form of the Paleo-Hebrew because it had a few more markers in it. Paleo-Hebrew only had 22 letters, but they had an advanced, a more advanced alphabet. Now you see evidence of this alphabet in the Hittite empire. You see evidence of this alphabet in what's called the Etruscan alphabet that was used in Northern Italy. You see evidence of this in Britain in what's called the Colburn alphabet, the Colburn alphabet. Now the British leadership to this day deny the Colburn. Oh no, the guy who claimed that there was a Colburn alphabet was a forger and a liar. And if you look up his name on Wikipedia to this day, they call him a forger and a liar. But he wasn't a forger and a liar. And how do we know that? 
Alan Wilson, Byron Blackett, found hundreds, hundreds of artifacts with Paleo-Hebrew or what we call the Colburn alphabet all over. Uh, they found it, you know, uh, in Southern Wales, in Northern Wales, they found it up as far north as Lancashire. They found it in the regions of Manchester and Birmingham. They found all of these artifacts in Paleo-Ivrit. Now, not only did they find Paleo-Ivrit or this Colburn language in Wales and in Northern Wales and in uh, Northwestern England, but they also found the very same language and evidence and artifacts of this language in Kentucky, Ohio, and Indiana. Evidence of the arrival of Prince Madoc from Wales and the establishment of a tribe of Welshmen who had established themselves in that area that became a Native American tribe in the sixth century AD, okay? So this is why when you talk about what's called the Bat Cave Stone, which was found in Tennessee, they said, well, that's Paleo-Hebrew. Well, yeah, it's Paleo-Hebrew, but it was also Colburn because Colburn is an advanced form of Paleo-Hebrew, okay? So this is why we study Paleo-Hebrew on at Sefer Academy, why Shel Wagner is teaching the OEO, the Paleo-Hebrew, because you can see the evidence of this Paleo-Hebrew now throughout all of Central Europe, throughout the Gaelic areas, and even in North America as a prehistoric language, a prehistoric Aleph Beit, if you will, okay? So now this is going to be an interesting interface because the Shakari, you know, the house of Issachar, Ishakar, Shakari, right? The Cherokee showed the same DNA as the Mayans. I mean, they have an, it's an exact DNA replica. And the Mayans will tell you, well, we were formed by a guy named Tula. Well, Tula was the firstborn son of Issachar. Okay, he was the firstborn son of Issachar. So you see that we have, we've got two witnesses now testifying that the Shakari are of the house of Issachar and that the Mayans and the Shakari are essentially the same people, okay? And the Shakari, which you can see a ton of evidence in this. There's there's uh, a film that was done by um, a concerning a Cherokee man who began to cattle ranch in, in uh, eastern Oklahoma. I forget the name of the film now. But he uses the name Yahuwah for the name of God. There was a film that starred Sam Erickson who was made in, I think, 1979. And he used, he's an interface with the Cherokee who used the name Yahuwah as the name for, you know, God, right? And the, the, the Hopi uh, Indians used the name Yowah, Yowah, for the name of Yahuwah, right? Yowah. And this is the state of Iowa. I-O-W-A was the spelling of their God's name, Yowah, Yowah, okay? So you, we begin to see here that we have evidence that the first American tribes, many of the first American tribes were in fact tribes of Israel that had been cast into dispersion. Now there are at least four textbooks that were written in the 19th century that reached that exact same conclusion that the tribes, the Northern tribes of Israel were found in North and South America. Okay, they reached the exact same conclusion. Now, it's not all the tribes, 
because we can see that part of the tribe of Judah was found in Ireland as Gaelic people. Part of the tribe of Judah was found in Scotland. Part of the tribe of Judah was found in, or part of the tribes of Israel were found in Italy, were found in Spain. You know, the house of Reuben occupies France, right? And e even the, the, uh, the tribe of Judah is also found up in the Nordic countries. The tribe of Dan is found throughout all of the Scandinavian countries, you see? So we see that the house of Israel has integrated throughout the earth. Now, Naphtali and so on, it's very clear that Naphtali went to the east. Well, there was a point when there were representatives of all 12 tribes in the Indus River Valley. And this was around 300 BC, that they would, that all the 12 tribes would, would leave the Tigris Euphrates or the Jordan, which was really a poor river to try to live a civilization on the Jordan. The Tigris Euphrates, much better river system, but even from there, they left and they went to the Far East, which was the Indus River system. And the 12 tribes regathered there and they became known as the Parthian Empire, the Parthian Empire. And the Parthians were every bit as significant as the Roman Empire, every bit as significant, every bit as powerful. In fact, they stopped the Romans uh, in the first century because the Romans had decided they'd reached an agreement. Now let's compare this where we are today. Let's see if we get an idea here. East versus West, right? So you have the Parthians who are there uh, forming an empire out of the Indus River Valley. And you have the Romans who have now secured Judea as a complete Roman satrap, right? It's totally owned by Rome. And so along comes Mark Anthony and other generals that are gonna go out there and make their reputation become Caesar. Well, the agreement was reached that Rome, Western Rome, will not cross the Euphrates into the east, that the Parthians will not cross the Euphrates into the west. So Rome can have everything to the west of the Euphrates, and the Parthians are going to maintain everything to the east of the Euphrates. Well, one Roman general, uh, who, you know, would, his reincarnation would be now in Ukraine, decided, I'm not going to respect that. I've got a large army. I'm going in. So he crosses the Euphrates with 70,000 troops and 10,000 cavalry. And of course, the Roman cavalry used swords, right? Swords and shields on horseback. And they come in and they burn five villages. And so the Parthians see this and they go, ah, interesting. So they put two guys with spears in sackcloth up on horses. And they stand up on the mountains in this sackcloth with these spears like, okay, we're barbarians here. And they kept leading the Romans farther and farther and farther and farther into the east. And when the Romans got far enough in the east, the Parthians showed up on both sides of the hill with 40,000 heavy cavalry in chain mail with steel-tipped lances and spears and full armor, chain mail for both their horses and their men. And they proceeded to slaughter all 80,000 of the Romans to the last man in that canyon. Then they beheaded the, the would-be Caesar, filled his mouth with molten gold, cut off his right hand and dipped it in gold, and sent his head and his hand back to Rome. Well, Rome said, hmm, we're not going to put up with that. Well, the agitation between Parthia and Rome would go on for another 200 years until one of the greatest battles in history was fought, where both sides lost more than 2 million men. Now. When Rome lost 2 million men, it never 
when Western Rome lost 2 million men, it never recovered from that. They had to hire mercenary armies from that point forward. They never recovered from that loss of the men. The Parthians, in the meantime, said, we're not staying down here in Persia. It's getting too hot because there was a real global warming going on at the time, about 11 degrees centigrade hotter than it is today. And they left. They packed it up. Why? Because Europe suddenly was warm. And all the ice that was occupying glaciers up in Norway and Sweden and up in northern Scotland and so forth, all that stuff had melted. So this is why you see evidence of grapes being grown on Iceland, grapes being grown in northern Scotland. And they're like, hey, guess what? All these rivers are now open. We've got this river system for commerce. The place is buildable. Let's go. So the Parthians moved north and went through Kazaria. They went through Kazaria and migrated into northern Germany. And so these became the Germanic tribes that were a continual and perpetual threat to Rome. Like, we got to go take on those Germanic barbaric tribes. We can call them barbaric if you want. But those tribes were formerly Parthian, and they had a vendetta. They were always at war with Rome. And when Rome got weak enough, they went down and burned Rome. They called themselves Visigoths, right? You had Ostrogoths and Visigoths. Ostrogoths, Eastern Goths, Visigoths, who were Western Goths. And so, you know, they're sitting around, hey, what are we going to do this weekend? I don't know. Let's go down and burn Rome. Great idea. So they burned Rome eight times, right? They burned Rome eight times. And so these tribes, the Visigoths, would eventually move all the way through Spain into Morocco. And in Morocco, they were known as the Vandals. It's the Vandals. The Ostrogoths would remain in Central Europe, right? But these were the Parthian remnant. Now, some of the Parthian remnant remained in Ukraine, and they would eventually Judaize. They would become Jews in what would become known as the Khazarian Empire, right? The Khazarian Empire. And it was a very corrupt group. I mean, those guys were extremely corrupt in that empire. And uh, so anyway, but that's another history. But the thing is, is that once the Parthians had moved into Central Europe and it flanked Western Rome, this was part of the impetus for Constantine to move the capital from Rome to Constantinople, because Constantinople was readily defendable and easily defended. It was a fantastic fortress and they could maintain water supplies, they could withstand long, long sieges, et cetera, et cetera. And so because of that, he became, he said, we're going to do this in Greek, not Latin. Now this fundamental becomes really critical for the believer because when he decided to do Greek and not Latin, the New Testament would be structured in Greek and not Latin. So Eusebius, who had translated what he had heard of the Hebrew, see Eusebius gets to the Holy Land, you know, he was also known as Jerome, St. Jerome, but his name was Eusebius Hieronymus. Eusebius gets into the Holy Land, and he doesn't speak Hebrew. So he has to rely on people who speak both Hebrew and Greek, or Hebrew and Latin, to relate to him the gospel message. The gospel message at that time was being delivered via word of mouth. Now, again, this is an important point, too, because when you talk about uh, the idea of how Mashiach did this, he comes at a time when there's no internet, you know, there's no printing houses, there's no publishers, right? You had a very 
uh, rudimentary time. And then he calls to his discipleship a lot of guys who couldn't read or write. And now we're going to spread this message. Well, the idea of spreading the message orally was very, very consistent with the house of Yasharel. That we're not going to do this in writing. We're going to do it by you teach your children, right? What it says in Deuteronomy. You teach your children this. And so you had this going on. Now, we know that like in the family traditions, you sit down at the dinner table and you tell family stories. Now, a lot of times your kids don't want to hear them. I'm sick of that story, Dad. I don't want to hear that story anymore. We've heard it a billion times. Yeah, of course, they've heard it a billion times. They, they've heard it so many times. They can tell it verbatim, right? They can tell the family story verbatim. Now, this telling of the family story verbatim is how the gospel message gets passed down. A verbatim discussion of the parables, a verbatim discussion of the events, a verbatim discussion of the miracles. And so Eusebius is compiling this from people who are giving him the gospel of Matthew. And he's compiling it in Greek and Latin. Well, he makes big mistakes. It's Eusebius who puts the horns on Moses, right? Eusebius did this because he didn't understand that that word is in horns. It means that his face radiated with light coming off his face, not horns. But he put horns on Moses. And, uh, and he made a number of other grievous errors. And he took some license. He is the one who created the word Lucifer. Lucifer didn't appear in the Hebrew. It doesn't appear in the Greek. He used the name of the former bishop of Antioch that decided he was going to use that name, call him Lucifer, even though the name doesn't appear in his way, the context justifies it. Once again, misunderstanding a prefix, right? He misunderstood a prefix. He did not rightly divide the word. So um let me see if I, I'm going to see if I can do this here and I'll show you guys this. I know I'm getting a little far afield here. I hope you guys don't mind. But I'm going to share a whiteboard here. Let's share the screen here with the whiteboard. Okay, let's see if we can do this. Okay, so you guys can see the whiteboard here. I hope. Okay, now. Yes, sir. All right. So what you see with, so what you see with like Machal is you would see like you had the, the main, right? And then you had the het. And then you had the vav. And then you had the lamet, right? So this was construed as machol, machol, right? And so they said, well, this is one word, which, you know, since it's one word, well, let's put it down here. Well, let's put it down here as machol, proper noun, right? A, oh, you, you look it up in Strong's, a proper noun, uh, you know, an Israelite, so I put it, right? Well, that's not true at all, because what they missed, what they ignored, was that this is a prefix. So now we have to go, and they, Strong's will admit that the root of machol is this word right here, chol. They will admit that. But machol means from round dancing. See, we're of round dancing. That's what it means because it's a prefix. All right. Now, let's take a look at another word that our friend Eusebius got wrong. So we've got a yod. That's a yod. 
It's not a very good yield, but that's what it is. Okay. And so then you have, oh, excuse me. You have to put the head up here first. So we have the head, then yod, then we have lamed, lamed. Okay. So he looks at this and says, oh, well, this word here is clearly hillel. Hillel. So in the passage you see in Isaiah 14, oh, that's Hillel ben Shakar, son, son of the one of the being inferred. Okay. But you can't say son of the morning because you don't have a head, Ben Shakar. It's not Ben Hashakar, it's Ben Shakar. So it has to be son of morning. Now, this is what he tells you now. He says, well, Hillel, this is the only place this word is found in this configuration. He says, well, this is Hillel, which comes from the word, hold on one second, which comes from the word, this is derived from the word. This is derived from the word halal, right? Well, halal is derived from the word halal, which means shiny or shining, right? Oh, okay. So this is, you know, basically this must be, this must be the root of this, right? But it's not because if you rightly divided the word and you recognize that the he is a prefix. Oh, okay. Well, the he is a prefix, very common prefix, like hakodesh, hamashiach, means the, right? The. All right. Well, if that's a prefix, is this a primary root? And the answer is yes, it is. Because the answer, this is yalal, which is much more common than hilal, yalal which means howling. So by rightly dividing this word, we find out that there's no Lucifer there at all. The word is Ha-Yalal Ben-Shakar, not Halal Ben-Shakar, but Ha-Yalal Ben-Shakar, which means the howling son of the morning, the howling son of the morning, okay? All right. So I wanted to show you guys that so you could see that we see these kinds of things. And remember, we've got interpreters and translators over the years, but the language has been lost. And so because it's lost, uh, you know, they go into these kinds of things. Now, someone says here that, let's see who said this, out of Babylon, says Michael Root taught that Eusebius devised the concept of three and a half year ministry of Yahusha. And Michael Root said it was only 70 weeks out. I remain unconvinced with Michael Root's theory because he has to deny the fact that there are two Pesachs uh, in the New Testament. And there's two Pesachs that are respected and he denies one of them. He says, well, that really didn't happen. But that means this theory is inconsistent with the written text. And uh, yeah, Shakar means darkness or black. Yeah, so you could say son of darkness and the of is unferred, but inferred, but not the the. There is no the. So if you have... Uh, Ha Yalal Ben Shakar, it is the howling son of darkness or the howling son of the morning or the howling son of you know the pre-dawn. 
And uh, yeah, well, you know, mourning is one construction, Rob, because you have to remember that when we look at the Hebrew, there are words that are good and words that are better. There are words that are accurate, true, but they don't convey the whole message. They don't convey the whole message. So um, this is why, you know, you would see them use the mourning in the inference that the morning is, you know, pre-dawn. It's a pre-dawn statement. At any rate, so what we see here, when you look at this construction of the word, you can see that we get Eusebius messing around with scripture. And he's messing around with it on behalf of Rome. But it is Constantine who says, let us bring in the Greek. Let us bring it in in Greek and not in Latin. This becomes a huge deal for us as believers because the New Testament is given to us in Greek. Even though Eusebius did craft the Codex Vaticanus in Latin, the Vaticanus has become extremely corrupted because the Catholic Church made changes as they deemed necessary and reserved unto themselves the right to do so. So you had the Codex Vaticanus, which was being reserved by the church, which would not be taught to the people. They'd teach it, but they wouldn't let you read it. They wouldn't let you read it. On the other hand, all these Greek scrolls have been amassing in Constantinople. So when Constantinople falls in 1453, these manuscripts all come north. Not all of them, but many of them come north. And they come north into the Netherlands. And they arrive in the hands of a guy named Desiderius Erasmus. And Desiderius Erasmus begins in the early 1500s to compile a New Testament from these scrolls that had come out of Constantinople. And he creates a Textus Receptus in the Greek. Well, his Textus Receptus, he finished in two years and it was sloppy, lots of typos. And so Beza got a hold of it and said, you know, you got way too many typos in here. Uh, Desiderius, I'm going to try to correct some of it. He corrects a lot of it. And then ultimately, the Stephanus Textus Receptus would be created. That would be the one that has the least amount of typos in it. Now, the Stephanus Textus Receptus is the Greek text that we rely upon today. If you pull up eSword or if you pull up Sword Searcher or some of the other, uh, some of the other online sources, you'll find that the Greek source of the New Testament is the Stephanus Textus Receptus because it's the most reliable. Now, from that comes the approach of Tyndale. We're going to take that and we're going to create that in English. Right? Now, Wycliffe had come before him to do it. Wycliffe got away with him translating a lot of the Bible into English. And his follower, Jan Hus, started reading Wycliffe's reading and going, hey, look, Wycliffe's onto something. But Jan Hus was in Prague. And the Czech said, oh, yeah? We're not putting up with you and your followers. And so they put him on a big bonfire in the middle of Venceslas Square and burned him. Then they killed 40,000 of his followers in, in uh, Czechia there. And to this day, their bones are amassed in a, called the Church of Bones. They would not bury them because they weren't, couldn't be buried on sacred ground. And they have a church full of their bones and their skulls and lampshades made out of their bones and so on and so forth in this church of bones. Now, the same thing happened in France. 
at La Rochelle, you had a group called the Huguenots that were following uh, John Calvin. And the French couldn't get to John Calvin, but they could get to his followers in France. And they slaughtered 40,000 Huguenots in France for being, quote unquote, Protestants. Okay. So at any rate, you can see that what takes place, this idea of putting the New Testament in Greek was a Constantine idea. It was a Constantine idea in order to give authority to the Byzantine Empire at the expense of Western Rome, at the expense of Western Rome. So this is where we are today. And this is why we see this conflict between the languages. And the question is, the question becomes is, was the New Testament originally conceived in Hebrew? And the answer is, yeah, it was conceived in Hebrew. And you can see evidence of this in the book of Revelation. In the verse 911, chapter 9, verse 11, and they had a beast that rose up of the abyss whose name was Abaddon. But in the Greek, but in the Greek, his name was Apollyon. Why would you say, but in the Greek? Because it was written in Hebrew. And if you look at Revelation closely, you will see that every verse of Revelation has an Old Testament foundation. Every single verse has an Old Testament foundation. So when you see this, you get this Old Testament foundation for the book of Revelation. It's quite interesting. And Revelation is the only book that says, should you study this book, you will be blessed. Because if you really study it and you go back and look at all of its foundations, you're going to find all of its foundations in the Old Testament. Now, this becomes really, really important. And I wish people, I wish people in the Christian church understood this. You cannot, you know, many of the Christians are divorced from Yahweh. They're divorced. They don't know it, but they're divorced from Yahweh. Well, that God, you know, it's very clear in the Old Testament. The Old Testament says it was Yah himself who wrote the Ten Commandments. Well, that God doesn't apply to us. Right? Now, for you to say that God doesn't apply to you, you are, and I've had many people write me about this, like comments on my videos and so forth. You know, you're adopting the philosophy of Marcion. Now, Marcion is a, was a church father who had taken the premise that the only scripture was the gospel of Luke and 10 epistles of Paul, two of which he forged, at least two of which he forged. Okay, well, thanks, Marcion. And he said, the Old Testament God was a bad God. It's nothing to do with the New Testament God. The New Testament God is an entirely different God than the Old Testament God. Now, this was Marcion's thinking, and I can tell you that this thinking is prevalent in the Christian church today. It goes without being said in many of those churches. But when you say, when you have such a clear instruction from Yah concerning guarding his Shabbat, and the Christian comes back to you and says, well, Jesus said, that Shabbat was created for man, not man for the Sabbath, and that I can rest whenever I want. Paul says, don't judge any man for the days he keeps, the days he doesn't keep. One man respects one day, another man respects another, and don't judge him for that. Therefore, I don't have to keep the Shabbat. Well, what you're saying is, 
is that whoever it was that wrote the Ten Commandments is not relevant to me. Because that God is a different God. That's that Yah, that Elohim is a completely different L than the L we have in the New Testament. So when you see that when you see in Revelation 13, 17, 12, 17, it says, Hasatan comes back to make war with the Kodeshim who are keeping the commandments and who have the testimony of Yahshua Mashiach. And in Revelation 14, 6, it says, these are the Kodeshim who are keeping the commandments and have the testimony of Yahushua HaMashiach. And when Mashiach says, uh, you know, keep my commandments in the end of Matthew 28, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And when John says in 1 John 5, this is the love of Yahweh, the keeping of his commandments. They say, well, his commandments are to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the extent of his commandments. So if the commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then John says, this is the love of God to keep his commandments. Well, the commandments are love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. End of story. We have a circuitous logic that is a, a, a final loop. Why is it a final loop? Because we don't we can ignore the Ten Commandments, even though scripture says plainly that Yah wrote them with his own finger. We can ignore those because that's a different God. That's Jews' God. That doesn't have anything to do with us. So if you're in a church like that, rip out the Old Testament. But in the Sefer, you can see that we have the quotes from the Old Testament indented in the New Testament. And we have the footnotes in the book of Revelation from all the Old Testament citations that are there. So why do you think the average preacher does not teach Revelation in the Christian church? We're not going there. We're not going to talk about that because everybody thinks they're a student of Revelation. We're not going to, that's too controversial. We're not, we can't, no, that scares people. No, we can't. They won't teach the book of Revelation because it necessarily is a walk through the Old Testament. I mean, I can show you, if you look in your Sefer, you know, third edition and up, you will see that the book of Hebrews is absolutely loaded with Old Testament quotes. The book of Romans, loaded with Old Testament quotes. And all of the Gospels are loaded with Old Testament quotes. Mashiach, quoting from Deuteronomy, quoting from 4th Ezra, referencing the book of Hanok, right? Uh, and quoting from the Psalms, what does Mashiach say to the woman at the well? Ye know not what ye worship, because salvation is of the Yahudim. That statement was a statement made in reference to the fact that the Samaritans only read Moshe. They only read the Pentateuch of Moshe. Moshe said, don't add to it. We're not going to add the writings of David. We're not going to add the writings of the, of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the, the 12 minors. We're not adding that. We only read Moshe. And Mashiach is telling her, no, no, no. Salvation of the, is of the Yahudim, which includes the Ketuvim, the Nevi'im, the Apocrypha, and even these works, Hanok and, and Yohelim. Right? And so this becomes a very, very important part of our understanding of scripture when he's telling her this, right? This is part of the salvation scheme. Now we know that the Torah, the whole of the Torah, is the whole of the text. 
because Torah is instruction and the Torah is given to us as an instruction that we might see what? Well, let's look at the forest for the trees. Yah chose the people and he chose the people on the basis of them guarding his Shabbat. And for no other reason. And when they abandoned that, he abandoned them. And you see very clearly, I chose these people to bless them in miraculous ways. They ignored me. They walked away. They did what human beings do. And as a consequence, I divorced myself from the Northern house. And I divorced myself from the Southern house. And I took my name away from their temple and destroyed their temple. And then I reconciled myself to all of humanity, to the low ami, not my people. I reconciled myself to those who were no longer, who were not my people, that they would become my people. And so the tree had all of its branches stripped off. There were no natural branches growing on the tree. Every branch that is on the tree of salvation is a grafted in branch. Every branch is grafted in, right? So anyway, the, the point I'm making going through all this history with you guys is that we can see that, as Solomon said, what has been done is what will be done, right? There's nothing new under the sun. The breach of crossing the Euphrates to attack of the Eastern armies was a huge mistake that Rome made that eventually cost the Western Roman Empire its entire empire. And the Western world that was controlled by Rome fell into the dark ages, where by the year 600, most people could not read or write. It became completely illiterate and became the most farthest behind culture in the world. Islam much, you know, went way beyond Europe in a very short period of time, as did the Chinese culture, because the Rome was cast into darkness. And we have the same thing going on today. There was an agreement made between the Eastern Empire, Russia, and the West, that when Russia went through its economic difficulties, the West would not go into former Russian republics. This was an agreement that was crafted, I think, in 1991, in writing. And that meant no NATO in any former SSR, Estonia SSR, Latvian SSR, Lithuanian SSR, Belarusian SSR, Ukrainian SSR, Georgian SSR, Azerbaijan SSR, Armenian SSR. All of those countries were former Soviet republics. There was an agreement that NATO would not expand into those near neighbors, and it was in writing. But one Roman general with an ego decided to breach that agreement and cross over that line. And because that happened, a massive war launched between the West and the East. And that war went on for centuries that ultimately resulted in the complete destruction of Western Rome and the Dark Ages. And this business of breaching agreements is what we see with the tribes. We were the ones you know, when you look at the, when you look at what happened with the um, Trail of Tears march, this was a genocide perpetrated by the United States on the basis of breached agreements. That would become a Turkish genocide against the Armenians a hundred years later, right, in Turkey. 
as they did a forced march of Armenians. There's photos from that Armenian genocide, by the way, where you can see the Turks had uh, captured and raped all these Armenian women and then crucified them in crosses. So I've seen a photo of eight women crucified naked on crosses during, during the Armenian genocide. And then you would see a precursor to the Civil War or to World War I, because World War I was fought the same way we fought the Civil War. And millions died, right? The whole generations died. And this was a population decimation that was done because socialists couldn't feed their population. Okay. So the breach of agreements with the American tribes now has resulted in us losing a very uh, important part of our heritage. The idea of Buffalo roaming the plain, right? The idea of, um, and there was some very important things said, and then I'm going to, then I'll terminate my remarks. There was a very important thing said at the museum and it said, look, the nation is not the nation until the women are on the ground. Now, I found that to be very important because what we see in our own world, particularly in America and in the UK, everybody's their own God, right? Well, thank you for giving us your teaching, but I have my opinion. Oh, you have your opinion. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for your, for your, your, your teaching, but I've got my opinion. I agree with you 90% of the way, but 10% I'm in disagreement with. Oh, are you? Yeah. Which means what? I'm doing my own thing. So I used to describe the conservative group in Washington as a broken windshield. You know, when you break a windshield, the glass hangs together in the, in the film, in the safety glass, but it's shattered into a million pieces. you got all these little tiny specks. And this is exactly what the faith movement is like right now. It's a broken windshield. Why? Because the women are not on the ground. The women are not on the ground. When you look at the tribal culture, the women are on the ground. They do the things that that tribe does. You know, they use the colors of that tribe in all of their cloth and in all of their uh, clothing. They, you know, they use the language of the tribe. They use these specifics. They make sure that their children have these specifics. And we do not have our women on the ground. We don't. We don't have our women on the ground. And because the women are not on the ground unified in our culture, the men have no nation to fight for. That's really what it comes down to. That's the bottom line. And so when you see, when you look at, I've heard people out there screaming and yelling that, well, you know, the Americans are the biggest chickens on earth, the biggest cowards on earth. We're allowing the school system to literally rape our children in kindergarten, mentally and spiritually rape our children in kindergarten and in first grade and in second grade. And we do nothing. We allow these child sacrifices to take office and hold power over the country and steal elections and shut down everything that was uh, good about America. Our courts have become completely corrupted and there's nobody lifting a finger. Well, we're not going to lift a finger. And the reason we're not going to lift a finger is because it's Yah's judgment and it's Yah's judgment on our nations because we have never grounded ourselves in a proper culture based upon the word. We want to still sit and argue about whether or not we should respect the Shabbat. We want to sit and argue about whether or not we should regard the food laws. We want to sit and argue about whether the Ten Commandments are binding. You know, thou shalt not kill. 
oh, that violates my Christian liberty. And if it violates my Christian liberty, then I've fallen from grace. That's what my pastor taught me. If I accept those 10 commandments, I've fallen from grace. Oh, have you? So what do you see now? You see the U.S. Supreme Court saying, well, we're going to overturn Roe versus Wade, the abortion mandate. And you have people out there saying, we're going to burn the Supreme Court to the ground. Now, if you're on the progressive, if you're on the progressive side, you can make those statements and nobody's ever going to arrest you. If you say something, we'd like to have a fair election, you can get arrested, you can get censored, you can get kicked off Facebook, you can get banned from Twitter. But we're not called to any of that. We're called to be a discreet, peculiar people, an observant people. And we have to get on the same page. And we have to get on the same page with an easy yoke and a light burden. Mashiach did not give us barbed wire. He didn't give us, you know, trappings. He didn't give us idols we have to worship. He didn't give us engraved images. He gave us an easy yoke and a light burden. And he renewed a covenant. What covenant? He, if you look at Jeremiah 7.21, okay, I want to point this out because... I'm going to be teaching on this this Thursday. But we need to see. We need to see what's written there. Because in 721, you're going to see Jeremiah spelling out something that's very, very important. And I just have to get to it here. So here we go. That says, Yahweh, Sebaot, the Elohai of Yasharel. Put your ascending smoke offerings under your sacrifices and eat the flesh. Do it. For I spoke not unto your fathers, nor commanded them. Okay, hold on. For I spoke not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Mitzrayim concerning ascending smoke offerings or sacrifices. But this thing commanded I them, saying, obey my voice, and I will be your Elohim, and ye shall be my people, and walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you. Now, if we look at Jubilees 2, Jubilees chapter 2, we're going to see, again, an affirmation of what's going on here. So Jubilees chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And he gave us a great sign, the Shabbat that we should work six days, but guard the Shabbat on the seventh day from all work. And all the angels of the presence and all the angels of sanctification, these two great classes, he has bidden us to guard the Shabbat with him in heaven and on earth. So let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Guess what goes on in heaven? They keep the Shabbat. That's what goes on in heaven. And he said unto us, 
Behold, I will separate unto myself a people from among all the peoples, and these shall guard the Shabbat. And I will sanctify them unto myself as my people and bless them as I have sanctified the Shabbat and do sanctify it unto myself. Even so will I bless them and they shall be my people and I will be their Elohim. So, and then Ezekiel 20.20 tells us, this is the seal I have placed on my people, the Shabbat. So what we see here is that the covenant given to us at Mount Horeb, when Yah spoke to us, he didn't command any sacrifices. You can't find a burnt offering or sacrifice in the Ten Commandments. And that commandment, he said, this is my covenant with you. Well, what is the condition of that covenant? It's very simple. The condition in that covenant is this. Do these things that I have commanded you, and I will be your Elohim, and you will be my people. Do these things that I have commanded you, and I will be your Elohim, and you will be my people. We see this, right? I can tell you when we talk about these 10 Devarim, this was the covenant when Mashiach said, This is the renewed covenant in my blood. Was he saying, oh, the covenant of circumcision? Was he renewing the covenant of the rainbow in the sky, not the flood of the earth? What covenant was he renewing? It was Yah's covenant, the Ten Commandments, exactly. This was the covenant he was renewing. And when you read properly the book of Hebrews, it says that the old covenant, they had forgotten. Now, it's just like in America. You know, we used to have Ten Commandments in every town square. The Ten Commandments are above the Supreme Court building in, in the U.S. Capitol, along with Confucius, right? I don't know what Confucius is doing up there, but he's above the Supreme Court. But we had the Ten Commandments up there, Ten Commandments in every village, in every town, in every state capital. But we have forgotten those Ten Commandments because Christian pastors have told you, if you come under those commandments, you've fallen from grace. And if you don't come under those commandments, in my opinion, Yahweh is not your Elohai. You worship a different God. Yahweh is not your Elohai. Okay. All right. I'm going to leave with that. So thank you guys for putting up with me talking this long. I appreciate it. I don't have much of a voice left, but I wanted to share that with you guys this morning. Okay. So let's go and let's see if we can answer some questions here. Let's talk with Catherine Wilmot. Catherine, how are you, Catherine? Hiya. I'm feeling much better. I'm in less pain. It was getting me very down. But um, I've been talking to Yah a lot. And um, you were speaking about the ten kings falling, which I agree with. 
And I agree, some of these royal families are falling. I believe the British royal family are falling. And I came across this, and then Yah gave me a word for you. But if, if I can read this, I came across this on the net. And it hit me quite hard. It says, God did not promise an unbroken monarchy. Well, we all know the British monarchy is broken. But an unbroken line of the descendants of David who would be qualified to sit on that throne when it, wa when it was reestablished. David's line will not fail before the righteous branch comes to claim his throne. Now we all know Yahshua is going to come down and claim the throne. But I do not believe the monarchy of Britain today, the royals, are the righteous branch. I firmly believe that they will be replaced. And I firmly believe, Stephen, you are teaching the righteous branch right now and more will come. Well, Catherine, you know this, this phrase in Isaiah that says, Yahweh is your king. Yahweh is your lawgiver. Yahweh is your judge. This phrase is dominant and true. So any king on earth, if he is not subject to Yahweh as his king, Yahweh as his lawgiver, and Yahweh as his judge, is not righteous and will not be exactly. righteous before Yah. And so this is why when you have a parliament, or These kings or will Congress. fall. Mm -hmm. When you have a parliament or legislature or Congress that is making laws that have no, that they cannot point to scripture and say, here's the basis of this law. They are not ruling under the authority of Yahweh. They have taken on and are espousing a different God. And you can see it very clearly. And so you know, these legislatures in California that are going to license abortion until the child's 28 days old, right? They think, they, they really think that they're not going to be judged for that. They're going to burn. They are going to burn. A ruthless judgment is going to come upon them. You know, when Carthage, you know, when I was talking about Carthage in its, in its third war, when Rome attacked Carthage the third time, they brought the Roman ships across the Mediterranean and they came into the port. When they saw the Roman ships approaching, they sacrificed 500 babies over the walls to appease who? Molech, of course, right? To appease their demons that they were worshiping. And we have mm. leadership across the world worshiping demons right now. And you can see. And royals. And oh, royals. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this the stone of scone is supposed to be about the idea of the king or queen pledging fidelity to Yah. I will be exactly. a defender of your ways, of you as king, as you as lawgiver, as you as judge. 
and every person on earth holding a position of those, those positions must be a servant of the most high, accountable to the most high. And if they are not accountable to the most high, they have no business being in authority at any level. And instead, in Britain, virtually everybody is accountable to the Masonic order. Yeah. And not to Yah. And they it's rife with the royals. Mm -hmm. they and um, when, when I saw this on the net, I also believe it can also be prophetic because I'll, I'll just read this again. When it was reestablished, David's line will not fail. Well, yeah, no, Yah where, where can be established. Catherine. Catherine. This came off. Wait, Catherine, where are you reading that? It came off Wikipedia, and I've been studying Luke 1 31 to 32. All right, so I want to see some scriptural support. I know that I believe that that is written in scripture. And, uh, but I want because to. Ultimately, it's, it's, um, ultimately, it's Yahashua is going to have the crown. No, Yahusha does have the crown. He's yeah, not going to have but, the crown. Yeah, who, no, yeah. wait a minute. I want, I want to make this clear. Okay. We have a living king. He's not dead. He is a living yeah, king. And he does have the crown. And he is the king over the whole earth. He has jurisdiction. So Satan may be down here operating and doing his thing and he's controlling men. Mm. But the ultimate king is Yahusha. And nobody is righteous in their command unless they are serving mm. him. If they are mm. not serving him, they are unrighteous in his command. Even if they're a direct descendant of David. Remember, Manasseh was a direct descendant of David. And he ruled for mm. 55 years as the most wicked man in history. Mm. Mm. And, you know, Baruch says, you know, even though there's a prayer of Manasseh saying, I repent, Baruch says, hey, he burned. Even though he repented, he burned. And, you know, mm -hmm. and so I want you to find that citation concerning the house of David. Find the scriptural citation. I believe there is one talking about mm -hmm. that, but I want you to find it. And I want to make the reminder to anybody who fancies themselves as royals. And believe me, I know a guy no. who, who I think is uh, a Romanov, direct descendant of the true czar of Russia, the firstborn of Alexander the third. And I believe he is probably the rightful czar in the bloodline of David for Russia. I know a guy, I believe is the rightful King in, in Britain, and both of them are in America and both of them are very quiet and they don't want to uh, raise any ruffles, but they have, they have, uh, you know, direct lineage, but no one, no. And I don't care if you are King, you're not going to last at all unless you recognize the true king, the king who sits upon the throne, the king who comes to judge the living. Exactly. Right? The king who gives a name on a white stone. Okay. All right. But thank you, Catherine, for raising that. Good to see you. I'm glad to see you're feeling better. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just I, I just thought it was interesting because y'all kept telling me he's preparing you to teach the right branch. Well, I'm, I, I, I do what I can as Yah leads, and I do the best that I can. And sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's better than okay, but that's about it. And it, I, you know, I don't know what 
Yah has in mind for me. It just he tells me to do this, so that's what I do. So, and I'm glad we can meet on Saturdays. And uh, so, because it's, it's so wonderful to be in this community with you guys. It's just wonderful. You're a great group of people. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's a true blessing. So with that, Catherine, I must go. And we're going to continue to pray for miraculous healing in your life. Okay. Mm. Yeah. I just need the Prince Metals gone. No, I need that to go now. (laughs) Okay. Amen. Amen. We'll continue to pray for that. Hallelujah. Okay. Okay, Catherine, thank Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. You bet. Okay, Doug, how are you, brother? Oh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And uh, one of the things that I, I've been working on is um, the, um, the sign of the uh, upcoming uh, lunar eclipse um, in a week from now. Right, right. And uh, this one is extremely important. Um, we remember the, uh, the uh, sign of the uh, September 23rd, 2017. The uh, Revelation 12, 1, the greatest sign that yes. no on earth actually ever saw. But yeah, that's sign, true. Huh? That's true. Right. But that doesn't mean it's not a true sign because... The sign believe, was seen in heaven. It wasn't seen on earth. Right. It's a sign like the, uh, the Chaldean astrologers that... Uh, brought the gifts to Yeshua, saw the sign. They saw a calculated sign. The astrologers in Judea didn't see anything. Right. They were looking for visible signs. So uh, just because a sign isn't seen visibly doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But the interesting thing is this eclipse that's coming up, this lunar eclipse, Remember in uh, Revelation 12, it says the moon is at the feet of the woman. Right. At midnight, Eastern Standard Time, the full on the night of the on the night of the actually early in the morning of the 16th, the moon will be in Libra at the feet of the Virgin. And it will go into a full eclipse at that time, a blood moon. There are no planets visible in the sky at that time. All of, all of the visible planets are on the daylight side. The only planet visible planet is the moon. And that is at the foot of the Virgin in Libra. The foot of, Vir- the foot of Virgo. Right, right. Uh, put a Virgo the Virgin, yeah, mm-hmm. and um, so all of the all of the signs there of the uh, Revelation twelve are there that it talks about. The only thing is we don't have any planets there. The sun is in the constellation um, Aries. It's just leaving the constellation Aries and going into into Taurus and it's at, at that at the point that it enters it's uh, above the uh, um, the uh, constellation uh, Perseus 
who has the head of Medusa and the and the bright star, what is it, Kappa Algo, is uh, is there, and that's the head of the Medusa, is right above the sun. Yeah, and interesting. So let's talk about this for a second because we see Libra being the you know the balances, the scales, right? And we see scales mentioned in Revelation six uh, six six. I think it is when we're talking about the black horse. Excuse me, six three, talking about the black horse and him holding a pair of scales, right? <clears throat> now we also see that this blood moon at the foot of uh, uh, the foot of Virgo is uh, it's very. I heard I've read some writings on this too that it will not be witnessed at all in Israel. So it's a blood moon appearing outside of Israel, <clears throat> and. While we're talking about this, Doug, and I want to hand it back to you here to get your comments on this, but, you know, uh, Israel has been desperate to try to establish a second homeland. They've been trying to establish a second homeland in Ukraine, and now they're talking about trying to establish a second homeland in Poland. And this is kind of, you know, uh, you know on, the, on the down low scuttlebutt. But this is what's going on. And part of the reason they're doing that is because they realize that as time goes on, they cannot, they're not going to be able to resist Iran anymore. And the truth is, is that Russia has already supplied Iran with hypersonic nuclear missiles. And it only takes one to completely obliterate the nation of Israel, just one. And so uh, you see that this is already underway. And so Israel knows this. And so they're kind of looking for a place to reestablish themselves. And they were thinking about Ukraine. And this is why Zelensky is there. And they were also, you know, in the Khazarian history. And they're also thinking about Poland now. But either way, uh, when we see this blood red moon appearing outside of Israel, it appears to be a balancing, a justice that is going to come to the world. Now, so what's your take on this? Tell me what your take is on this. Well, one of the things about the balance is the balance scales are also on the banner of Dan. Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. And um, there are there is a, uh, a Jewish um, scholar that uh, studies the lost in tribes and has um, made a video is Yar Davidi. Yar Davidi, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, and he, yeah. he talks about uh, Dan being uh, a bringer of just judgment and justice in the end times. Yeah, that's correct. Dan will judge his people is the forecast in Genesis 49. And uh, if you if you look at the blood moon, it's coming at midnight. It will be visible in almost all of North America. Of course, you, you won't see it in, uh, in Alaska or you know, most of uh, Canada because uh, the sun is out, so you won't really be able to see it. But almost all of the United States and all of Mexico and all of Central America and all of South America and all of Antarctica will see the entire blood moon. Right. Yeah. Same with Africa, too. I think Africa sees it. Well, yeah, a large part of the African continent will see it, but they won't see the whole thing. It's the uh, Western Hemisphere is going to see the whole thing. And uh, at the height of the blood moon, of course, all of the illuminaries are extinguished as far as 
we're concerned, the sun is not visible, certainly. None of the planets are visible. They're all on the other side of the earth. And, this, and the moon, the only luminary at its brightest becomes dimmed. I think this is a really pathetic, pathetic sound. And I did a uh, code table on it. And it uh, comes out in, uh, in Luke and uh, in parts, parts of Luke and John in the Peshitta. And um, the biggest thing but is in John 3.17, there is a horizontal term going across there in that verse that is fear not. And so that, uh, that is very, very telling, but all of the other terms are in there. And the, uh, the uh, um, I'm going to make a video on it this, this week. So I'll, you know, copy it to, uh, to you and, and others here that. Uh, I yeah, I would love to see it. I would love to see it because, you know, I think the, um, uh, you know, uh, Chris Ray has been talking about this blood moon too, and he's just saying right. this. This is a real threshold event, and right. I think it may be. I mean, we're on the precipice of many, many things right now. Right. And, you know, I don't want to spend too much time in, the, in Shabbat because it's much more important for us to concentrate on what Yah is doing. Oh, absolutely. Concentrate on what men are doing. Right. Mm -hmm. Much more important, and it's much more important for us to reconcile our walk with Yah than it is to even comment about what's happening with uh, what's happening with um, what's happening with uh, uh, with the world, right? But we do know that we've arrived at a point where a Russia's hand is going to be forced. I mean, there is no question. I mean, a Gabriella, you know, who lives in Finland, can tell us. And maybe we can get a report from her here shortly. But uh, Finland has amassed all of its tanks on the Russian border. And uh, Romania has moved a substantial body of troops to the Ukrainian border, the Moldovan border. Poland has been has called all of its military into maneuvers. And they're amassing all the forces they have in Poland again, along the Belarus and Ukrainian border. So these are, it's very, very clear to Russia that NATO is planning a, an extended uh, invasion into Russian space, and as well as the NATO troops in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and uh, you know Yukashenko, uh, Yuvtashenko, whoever his name is that's running um, Lukashenko in uh, Belarus, he's come out and said, "Look, you know, I'm I'm Putin's best friend, but uh, you know, oh, we don't want war, but Putin is going to give you war." And so it's very likely that Russia is going to move with, uh, they're going to be tactical nuclear weapons that are going to be used. And they're going to be used broadly in that entire, in that entire theater. Now, most of the strikes are going to be military targets. If you look at what the Russians have done in Ukraine, they have done precision strikes against military targets repeatedly. And so these, these strikes are probably going to be, you know, tactical military strikes against uh, strategic targets. But there may also be strategic strikes 
There may be strikes against Brussels. There may be strikes against London. There may be a strike against Berlin. And there may be strikes against the United States. I don't know that. I don't, I don't have a you know, crystal ball here that I'm looking into. And I, don't, I certainly haven't been given a prophetic word from Yah saying this is exactly what's going to happen. I did not say, thus says Yahweh, right? You know, I did not say that, right? But it looks to me as though we're going to be seeing a, a massive, very quick escalation that is going to be an escalation that is going to engulf all of Europe in a dramatic cataclysmic war. And once the war begins, once nukes are used in Eastern Europe, the Chinese are going to have a license to take Taiwan because they will be able to use nuclear weapons against the United States because the genie's out of the bag. All of this, of course, is being directed by you know, forces outside the control of human life. And so we as a people, we have a responsibility to get on the ground. We need the women to take the lead in grounding the culture and saying, this is how we do things. And not being at odds with the Ten Commandments, not being at odds with the teaching of the gospel, but to ground these things, to ground these things in their own home, to ground these things with their children, to ground these things with their husband, but to ground these things. We have to grind, we have to put these things on the ground because it doesn't matter, you know, you know, a bomb goes off, right? Takes down all the buildings, takes down this, takes all down all that. But over there, there's still grass growing in the cow pasture. Why? because the grass was grounded, right? Invading army comes in, they come in and they blow up this, they blow up this military base, they blow up that. But there's still farmers over there that are still milking their cows in the morning. What's that about? That's because they're the people that were grounded. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So, so how do we get a hold of uh, Doug's video then? He mentioned doing it. Can you give us a way to get a hold of it? Well, I haven't made it yet, so <laughs> it's well, coming. You're making up. a pill here, Doug. Yes, I know. I've, 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 I've got it all, all set up, ready to go. Uh, by the way, the, uh, the Matrix doesn't have any prophecy about any worldly events. It confirms Revelation 12. All of the, everything that's in Revelation 12 is in that matrix. And that's, wow. that's what is there. The serpent being cast down, the virgins, the wise virgins, and, um, and that are in there. So it doesn't have things about, you know, it doesn't talk about Russia, Ukraine, or anything. It just talks about what's in what are the signs that are being seen in the blood moon? And it does have the blood moon in there. So it's everything that's, that's happening that is in Revelation 12. Confirms yeah. that sign. Yeah, very important. Yeah. And uh, John's question, of course, I think is on the minds of everybody. Uh, that we would, you know, everybody wants to see this video that when you, when you get it done, Doug, because, of course, we want to see, you know, the Revelation 12 sign 
I think it's an extremely important marker. I mean, anybody who looks back at the last years coming back from 2017, you know, we're five years into it now. These have been the most extraordinary five years in human history. And I think everyone would agree to that, right? We've had things taking place that have never been seen before, like the pandemic. Never was a worldwide order given and every nation on earth complied. That never happened before. And that order originated in Rome, right? The Laudato Si of Pope Francis. That's where that order began. And so, you know, so here we are. We're seeing in most extraordinary seven years. And I think we can, you know, when you look at the science in the heavens, I think we continue to see in, in extraordinary years until we get into 2024. You know, we have the two eclipses coming through in 2024, which will create an Aleph Tav over North America. In the Paleo Ivri, it creates an Aleph Tav. And this thing isn't going to wind up <clears throat> until we get to Sukkot in 2024. That's when it winds up, right? So we have a lot to endure. And the most important thing is not to endure physically, but to endure spiritually. And I mean, just to give you guys the news, I mean, look, when we get into 2023, 2024, they're going to criminalize the faith. They're going to criminalize it. And more importantly, they're going to introduce Elon Musk's transhumanist chip. And for those of you who have children, your children are going to go to school and there are going to be kids who are immediately going to be chipped in their mind. And they're going to come to class speaking five languages. They're going to come to class with every, every answer at their fingertip because they just say, Alexa, give me the answer. Siri, give me the answer. But they don't even have to do that. They just think it. And a Google search engine is going to provide the answer to them about any question they may have. So on one hand, they're going to be the most intelligent being in the room. On the other hand, they're going to be the dumbest person in the room because their mind will have nothing in it. They will just be automatons for a computer chip that's in their brain. But imagine when your child comes home and says, I'm flunking every class because 25 of the kids are chipped and they're getting 100% and I'm still getting a 10% or a 15% or a 20% and I can't speak Swahili and I can't speak German and I can't speak Georgian, right? So what kind of pressure then comes upon you? Enter the transhumanist world or don't. And if you're not going to enter the transhumanist world, then you're going to have to leave the digital world behind. Now, this is what I was explaining to the fellowship the other night. When we leave the digital world behind, we become the organic crop that's forgotten. We're no longer the, the high-producing GMO. We're those trees that resisted the scion. We're those trees that resisted the mRNA. We're those trees that resisted the genetic changeup. We're those trees that resisted the transhumanist. And we're going to be falling behind in the social order, greatly falling behind. We're going to be considered them. And we're going to be criminalized. They will marginalize us and criminalize us. You have to recognize that. This is part of the faith. This is why Yahusha says, when I come back, will I find even one faithful? It's a decision we all have to make. It's a decision I've already made. Whatever. You guys want to come over and kill me? Come over and kill me. Whatever. Right? 
it's not the end of the world for me. It's the end of the world for them, but it's not the end of the world for me. And so when it comes to this, you know, and you might want to prepare in your heart too when we talk about being grounded. You're going to have to prepare in your heart and prepare in your own life about the idea of losing your digital identity. That means your digital interface is going to go away. That's going to happen. And when it does, when we're not going to be able to meet on Shabbat anymore like we can now. So we have to prepare ourselves for this. We have to be strong in the faith. That's why like the telegram groups have been formed so you can meet people in your area so that you, you, you're not just all alone. You have someone you can talk to that is within driving distance, right? Because we're going to need each other now. Okay. Well, thank you, Doug. We're looking forward to the information. If you can provide it to, you can provide it to me or you can provide it to Eileen or Tina and we'll get it up on the Telegram groups and so the instant your video is available, it can be made available to everybody. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll email it to Elena and um, at supper.net. Okay. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you, Doug. Thank you. Right. Thanks, brother, for your work. Thank you. Okay. And, and thank you for your work. It, it is, and I love the history. I love the history. I mean, uh, oh, it's great. I, I know that, you know, my, my maternal side of the family is Huguenots from, uh, from the northern part of France and Spain. And, and the, uh, the paternal side is, are, uh, are the pilgrims. So, uh, yeah, 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 outstanding. So, yeah, you come from two rebellious clans there, Doug. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, when we finish up the Hebrew class that I'm teaching right now, and we just finished the main, so we're 13 letters in, we've got nine letters remaining, and then I'm going to do the Sophie, I'm going to do uh, the last teaching will be on the Aleph Tav. The last teaching will be on the Aleph Tav. So, we have 10 classes remaining in the Hebrew class. Once we finish with the Hebrew Aleph Bait, then I'm going to be going into history. I'm going to be teaching history, and we're going to begin with antediluvian history, pre-flood history. And we're going to be talking about that and talking about it in reference to what we find in Scripture, in particular the book of Hanok. And we're going to see what this antediluvian history looks like and explore it a little bit. And But yeah, I'll be teaching history, and the history class is going to be ongoing. And I can find myself in the beauty of teaching history is that I get to go down every rabbit trail. Well, now, wait a minute. Let's take a little time to talk about <laughs> Let's take a little time to talk about this, talk about that. The rabbit trails will be a lot of fun, though, because it's going to unearth a lot of information, I hope, I'm praying. Uh, so just to let you know, when we finish the Hebrew class, I'll probably take a week off, and then we'll begin with, or two weeks, actually, or, well, one week, and then we'll begin the first of the month with the uh, history class. Okay. Hmm. Chris, how are you, brother? You talk for a while. I'm, I'm, my voice is shot. <laughs> Shalom, Doc. Shalom. Shalom. Hi, Melissa. Good to see you. So, so Doc, our, our internet uh, connection seems a little unstable. I'm not sure. Hello. Well, you know, Gene, you're over there giving, giving us an echo. I'm going to put you on mute again here. Just a second. There we go. Yeah, I'm sorry it, it appears unstable. I mean, I'm hearing this from everybody. We've got instability. I mean, my connection here is perfect. I can see everybody and hear everybody. But you're okay. getting a little instability at your end. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, I, I, okay. As long as you can hear me, then it's then it's great. Yeah, I can hear you. Sure. Okay. You're coming in perfect. Cool. 
Okay, so uh, if you don't mind, we just want to talk about our Torah portion reading. Absolutely. That's why I gave you the floor. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so, so, so Melissa's here because she's got a revelation and I've got a revelation, so we're just going to try and wing it and share it. Hallelujah. <laughs> right, you want to... So I'll read from Leviticus 25, from verse 3. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard, and gather in it the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for Yahweh. All right, and then uh, in uh, the same chapter, on 21, it says, Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth its fruit for three years. And you shall sow it in the eighth year, which is obviously the next. Yeah, Chris, we got to forget. Go ahead. You got a, you got a problem? Yeah, we had you, you. You froze up there for a second. Can, can you right. read verse twenty-two again? Yes, and he shall sow at the eighth year, and eat eat yet of old fruit until the ninth year. So then it was six were produced in the sixth year, right? Uh, am I? Am I okay with that, Doc? Yeah, I think you're right about okay. that. Yeah. All right. So then in the ninth year, obviously, you would then reap again of that that you've planted in the eighth year. But also right. keep in mind, though, Chris, keep this in mind, yeah. too, that it is permissible, although the land is in Shabbat, right? You have not sown, right? It is permissible to glean during that seventh yeah. year. So you have a you've got a double provision in the sixth year, and you can glean whatever happens to crop up. You can glean that in that seventh year, right? Correct, correct. And in uh, yeah, in the seventh year and in the eighth year, obviously, um, when if there is anything that comes up, you know what I mean. So um, interesting six six uh, uh, three 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 times in the sixth year. And then in the ninth year, you will eat again of the fruit that you've planted in the eighth. So you get that three, six, nine, right? And I'm not saying anything about, I'm, I, this is not what I'm, but I'm just wondered if Tesla got some of his little theory out of that three, six, nine from this. Oh, uh, of course you did. Of course yeah. you did. Yeah, it's not just Tesla, but also Isaac Newton. I mean, you know, Isaac Newton took the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and divided it by the divine seven to find pi. Right. You know, if, if you go back to Newton's writing, you'll see it's loaded with Hebrew scripture. Right. Right. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. So then taking that into mind, and you go then to the Besorah of Lucas, um, it, it, in verse 6, he says, And he spoke also this parable, a certain man, the fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came to sort fruit thereon, and found none. 
Now remember the, 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 there's another there's another scripture about this in uh, Mark where 11 I think it is where he goes to the fig tree and he finds none but it wasn't even the season of the fig tree and then he curses it um, and and we spoke about it a couple of weeks ago that 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 this could be Yasharel right the the teachings of Yasharel in other words the the um, the Yesherali like he saw Philip under the fig tree and he said, I've seen you under the fig tree this morning. And then Philip believed because he knew that the fig tree was a representation of Yasharel. So uh, the unbelieving Yasharel is what I would like to address. But it says here, behold, these three years, this is now, this is now the next, uh, then he said unto the dresser of his vineyard, behold, these three years, I come seeking fruit on this tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbers at the ground? Right? So why is this tree that's bearing no fruit sucking up good soil, good stuff from the soil? Let's rather cut it down. Right? And then the guy says, and he answered him and said unto him, My Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig it, dig about it and add dung to it. Right? So he's going to fertilize it. And if it bear fruit well, and if not, then after that, you can cut it down or we'll cut it down. Uh, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So, so here we've got the three again, the three, which is interesting, the three years. And, okay, so that, that I'm going to leave to Melissa now. She's going to carry You're going to read from it. where? From where? Uh, no. So from there, I'm going to give it over to Melissa. Oh, okay. <laughs> so as Chris was uh, reading from Luke 13 at verse 7, um, it was very interesting that Yahusha says, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree. And I thought, well, why does he say three years that he comes seeking? And it's very interesting that if you take into consideration 2 Peter 3, verse 8, where a day is as a thousand years, or in this case, um, if you equate three years to 3,000 years, um, for when he came at the 4,000 year and then up to the 7,000 year would be three years, uh, three years or 3,000 years. And it's very interesting because he, when he came and he died and rose again and he gave us the Ruach to enable us to bear fruit. And we then have that time of three years to bear fruit and the seventh being a Sabbath, where there's no, um, uh, uh, what would you say? The, the uh, there's sowing, no reaping. There's no, no sowing reaping. and reaping on the seventh year as a Sabbath rest, where then we still bear fruit. And then that time is complete for when he, for the final judgment. That's just very interesting that he gives us those three years when he comes seeking and he says, these three years I've come seeking for fruit. And how important that is then 
for us to bear the fruit of the Ruach mm. in, in this time that we're in, because now is the time of the harvest. And at the Sabbath rest time, there will no longer be a harvest. And that was just very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, so in 21, he says, it is like, so he's likening the uh, kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Yahweh, unto uh, leaven. So this is very interesting to me, Doc. Um, you know that it says, it is like leaven. Which, which we would think, well, okay, that is sin. But however, over here in the word, it says, the kingdom of Yahweh is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, which is interesting. Now, the, the, obviously, the likeness of leaven is because it spreads. It's spreading in all the meal. But what are we going to do with it? What are we doing with it? And are we listening to it? And are we uh, till the whole was leavened. So in other words, everything is leavened, but um, depending on what you're going to do with it, I think is, is the key there. And then on the, on, uh, in verse 32, it's, and, and then I'll give it over to Melissa to, 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 to say what she has to say. And he said unto them, go he and tell that fox, the fox being Herod, behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. And that third day, if you equate it to the uh, seven thousand um, years. years being the Sabbath rest, and that is the day that is perfected when he again returns with us. It's very interesting that it says, on this third day I sh shall be perfected, although that is the day he rose. Mm. Which is the body, of, the body of Mashiach, which is us, right? Yeah. You know, and this is a very good point because, you know, if we had known these things uh, back during the 17th century, or we had known them back in the 9th century, or known them in the 5th century, we would know what Paul was talking about in 2 Thessalonians 2. You know, do not be disturbed by, you know, by letter or by word that the day of Yahweh is coming, but just continue on your path and doing things because it's going to be 2,000 years from when? Now, that's a question. It's going to be 2,000 yeah. years from when? Is it going to be 2,000 years from the beginning of his ministry? Is it going to be 2,000 years from his birth? Is it going to be 2,000 years from when he was 12 years old and taught in the synagogue is it going to be 2000 years from his 20th birthday is it going to be 2000 years from his resurrection. When is it going to be right? And exactly. I think that I think it's going to be exact, Chris, I think it's going to be exact. It will be exactly 2000. Yeah. So, so doc, uh, this is an interesting question because I did speak to Brian and Chris about this a bit. Because, you know, I'm interested in their calendar and I'm interested in what they, in their thoughts. Um, so I just quickly put it, what do you think, I said to him, what do you think, did Yahusha die in the Jubilee year? Because it is quite, and, 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 and he said, well, anyway, I'm not going to go into, I, I know that you, you've got a, a, also an opinion and which, which is good. So I, I just want to put it out there. I mean, Yahusha, um, is it, he is the Torah, right? And he is the Torah made flesh. He is the feasts as well. He is everything. 
and he's fulfilled some of those feasts. But, and, 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 and this is just something that's interesting to me, he, he must do as well, fulfill the Jubilee, um, which will give us this uh, 50th year where, where, where everything is redeemed, right? Because he is the redeemer. Um, so I would like you to expand on that one a little bit, Doc, if you can. Um, can can well, I chime in here one second quick? John, if you don't ask a question when Chris is talking, then something is wrong. Then something is wrong. Because actually, this I found this very intriguing this morning myself when I read through that. Because many times they'll use that verse uh, 32 to say, today and tomorrow and on the third day, I will be perfected. Right? So they want right. to say that that's, that's uh, we don't have to have three days and three nights. But I think you're absolutely right. This is about his return because the next pa the next passage is for I walk today, tomorrow, and the day following. For uh, it cannot be a prophet perish outside of Yerushalayim. That's the three days and three nights. This verse, verse 32 there, that's going back to Hosea where he says he will revive us after two days. Mm -hmm. Right. Hallelujah. And so, Hallelujah. so then, then when we come back in, this whole thing I think is one fluid uh, uh, statement concept. here because concept. Because when you're talking about the parable, it kind of goes back to Shell's question last week about the the one with with it's not bearing fruit, right? Because she asked the question last week about the parable of of the seed and the sower. Well, the the fourth one is the one who bears fruit. And that's what we need to do. This is our personal thing. We need to bear fruit. And I, when I was reading this, I took it as this is, this is about us. He's digging around us and preparing us to bear fruit. Because then when you get to verse 18 and 20, where he's talking about the fowls living in the, in the branches of, of the uh, mustard tree, that's, that's the uh, that's the kingdom of Elohim. The the demons come in and they nest in there. Then when you get into the leaven, it's mixed all the way through. It's like the wheat and the tares that get sown out into the field. We grow up together. This sin is mixed into this. And the only exactly. way that we can get out of this is by him digging around our roots and having us produce fruit for him. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so I agree with you, John. I mean, everybody needs to be uh, to be in good soil, right? And that's what that uh, that that planter of the vineyard, the, the dresser of the vineyard, that's what he's doing. He's making sure that the soil is good to bear fruit. All right. But yeah. the thing is, yeah, that's correct. But let but hold on. Let's talk about this. <clears throat> yeah. Because when we talk about you know, of course, the analogy is really kind of crazy because he's using dung, you know, to make the soil good. But <clears throat> you remember the um, the passage in Ezekiel when Ezekiel is told, Yah comes to him and says, okay, and now I want you to bake your bread over human dung. And Ezekiel's like, look, I, I can do a lot of crazy stuff, but that one's a little outside. And so Yah says, okay, you can bake it over cow dung then, Right. <clears throat> which they still do, by the way, in India. They bake bread over cow dung. But 
nonetheless, you see this kind of crazy analogy. However, the fruit tree in being in good soil is something that we as husbandmen should be doing. Yes. In other words, we have a responsibility to plant our fruit tree in good soil. We just can't wait for Yah to come along and do it. We have a responsibility to do it. And when you're talking about good soil, when you're talking about bearing fruit, for a lot of people, this is a big question. How do I bear fruit? Well, your actions speak louder than your words. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people think, well, I can get out there and say, you know, Jesus, and I've, you know, and I'm a tree bearing fruit. When you're not, you're chasing people away with your obnoxiousness, your arrogance. You know, I knew a guy that liked to be a street preacher with a, he had a, uh, PA that was on a battery and he'd go down to the park and he'd crank it up. Well, he got ticketed for doing that. Why? Because the people in the park whom he assumed were non-believers, but may have been believers, were down there at the park trying to enjoy themselves. And he's got to, you know, hey, baby, this is Mr. Microphone. You know, I'll be back to pick you up later. You know, <clears throat> and he was extremely offensive and it was not persuasive. So what is persuasive? How do you be persuasive? How do you demonstrate the love of Yah? You have to be a demonstration of it, not somebody speaking it, but somebody living it, somebody doing it. And, you know, as the gospel says, put your light on a stand in front of your window. You have to be a light to the nations, you know. And I used to tell this story, you know, when I was in Israel, you could immediately recognize the followers of Mashiach from the ones that didn't. You could look down the street and you could see it because the followers of Mashiach would open the door for the person in the wheelchair, would let somebody go in front of them in the line, would extend courtesy to another person. The people who didn't believe in Mashiach, just get out of my way, get out of my face. It's about me, not about you. Move, right? Now, it's the same way in the community, in the communities where we live. Mm. We have to perfect our love of humanity. And we have to perfect our love of humanity. It's a constant challenge for me because I want to, you know, berate that driver on the road who doesn't know how to drive. Then I think to myself, that person might be in my fellowship. Why am I screaming about their driving, right? That person might have a car that's barely running and that's all they have to get to and from work. Why am I screaming at them, right? It's the same thing with the person in line, the person at the store, the person you meet casually on the street, the person you've never met, you know, do you come to them as a person extending the love of Yah to them? You know, I went to, hold on a second. When we had to take our dog in because she was a filthy mess. We had to have her groomed, right? <clears throat> because she really was bad. But when we will go into the store, the poor clerk behind the, behind the counter is just like, I'm beleaguered. I can't deal with this. Too many people. I'm burned out. This job is horrible. You know, right? I mean, you've seen them behind the check stand, right? And so what are we going to do? We're going to sit there and jump down their throat or do we make their life nicer by saying, I'm not a customer that's here to complain. I'm not a customer that's here to get the best deal. 
I'm not a customer that demands that you act right now so that I can get out the road because I got places to go, people to meet and things to do, right? You're meeting the person you needed to meet right then. You're in a divine appointment with another human being. And you have the opportunity in that divine appointment to share the love of Yahweh. Now, this is bearing fruit. This is dunging somebody else's tree with the love of yeah. Yahweh, right? Love your neighbor as yourself, you know, and extend your love to your enemy, you know, and the opportunity to pray for somebody is always an opportunity to bear fruit, right? Because when you talk about, when you, you come to somebody, let me preach the gospel to you. I don't want to hear it. I heard it at the church. I don't need to hear it from you. I've heard that stuff all my life. Keep your mouth shut. I don't want to hear it, right? Or you might go to somebody who's been quiet their whole life. You have no idea what their faith journey is. You have no idea who they are. And you're assuming you're an ignorant pagan who doesn't know anything. And then you start off with that assumption. All you're doing is offending the daylights out of them. But when somebody comes to you and they're in a disposition that is, Obviously, they've had a bad day. Obviously, they're having a bad hour. And some people, and people in our fellowship meet them all the time, are living lives of massive desperation. And, you know, to be able to meet that person and say, hey, let's pray. Can I pray for you? Let's pray. Do you want prayer? You know, the opportunity to pray for somebody is the opportunity to do the work of the kingdom. Because it's not about you. It's not about your skill set. It's not about your ego. It's not about your knowledge. It is about the power of the Ruach Absolutely. and the grace of God. That's what it's about. It's not about anything else. Yeah. So, John, I just want to answer your question there uh, about the fig tree. Because in Luke 6, it talks about the fig tree. And it also says, does a tree... Uh, uh, being corrupt, bring forth good fruit. Now, that cannot be, right? right? And then, and 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 then it says also that there was not one good, no, not one. Only Yahusha was good, right? And and Doc, I mean, uh, uh, just just on that, uh, um, when Yahush when Yahusha says that uh, that uh, about Yahud, right? That that uh, the, this the the salvation comes from the Yahudim. Uh, I, I also and, and I'm not saying that I'm not. I'm just saying that this is also something that I'm thinking about. Is that he, he is the salvation, right? And he comes from Yahud. So when the woman. In other words, you know, in, the, in, in Isaiah, I believe it is, where, where it says, um, hold on to the hem of the Yahudim for the salvation. Am I right in saying that? Is it in Isaiah? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. It's either Isaiah or, or, or I think it is in Isaiah. But anyway, the thing is that what does the woman do with the issue of blood? She holds on to his hem, right? Because he is the salvation of Yahud um, come, in, come as obviously as the Messiah. He is the Messiah, right? So, um, so this has also got a futuristic thought to it uh, because later on in, in Luke 21 and these other scriptures in Matthew 24 and uh, where, where, where he's talking about when you see the fig tree um, 
I think it's I think it says something like the branches become tender. In other words, it's starting to bear uh, to 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 stretch out again. Then know that the time of the end is near, or the time the coming of the Son of Man. I, I excuse my paraphrasing. I don't know what, exactly what it says there. the The point is the point being that um, when does this fig tree again stick its ugly head up? is when the people are brought to the synagogues to be accused by them in Revelation. Am I right? So the bud of that fig tree can still come at that time, but it's not, it's nothing good can come from that fig tree because it's the same, it's the same thing as the stones, right? In, 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 River, in, in, uh, in Luke 11, right? He gives you good, good fruit because Yahweh says, how much more uh, if you are evil can, and you know how to give your children good fruit or good things, will Yahweh give you the Ruach HaKodesh? Because it's only through the Ruach HaKodesh that we can bear good fruit. If that makes sense. Good. Yeah. You know, we, we, we can try our best uh, to be good and to, um, but if it doesn't come out of a good place, in other words, if it's not coming out of belief in Yosha, it's a dead work. It's something that you're trying to do. It's, uh, it's got nothing to do with Yahweh. Well, Chris, uh, somebody has brought up in the chat a passage out of Ephesians, uh, beginning in five, uh, five. Well, I'm going to read from uh, five, uh, verse five. Okay, so it reads this. Uh, no, uh, verse six. Okay, so well, I'll, verse five. Servants, be obedient to them that are your adonim according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in single-mindedness of your heart, as unto Mashiach, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but as the servants of Mashiach, doing the will of Elohim from the heart with goodwill doing service as to Yahweh and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive of Yahweh, whether he be bond or free. And ye Adonim do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your Yah also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. So we see this idea that the good fruit that we want to produce is fruit unto Yah, not fruit unto men. And, you know, and the good word that we want to have is we are working on behalf of the kingdom. We're not working on behalf of men. And I'll tell you, it's, it's a hard thing to kind of leave off, but it's a very important thing because I think when we, when we get to a point that we have uh, when we, we get to a point where we have an idea of how we're going to bear fruit, we want to bear fruit in a manner that is that evidences the love of Yah. That's what we want to do. And I want to emphasize that again. We want to bear fruit that evidences the love of Yah. And this is the kind of people we should be. We should be people who are who love Yah and love Yah's creation and to treat Yah's creation with love. Amen. Amen.
right? And I think that's why when Paul says this is the whole of the law, right? Right. The whole of the Torah is encompassed by this idea of love your neighbor as yourself and love you have with all your heart, mind, and soul. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's Yahusha who came in love, which is the ultimate, the ultimate thing, right? Because he loved the world. He loved the sinner. That he died for the sinner. Amen. So if he loves the sinner so much, are we not supposed to love the sinner? Yeah, well, no? we are. Yes, we are supposed right. to love the sinner. And when we talk so about this, now this becomes so kind of difficult because we know, Chris, that we're in a war right now. We're in a war with people who actively want to defile all of the culture. Yeah, that's that's. that's they want to defile our children. They want to defile our culture. They want to get permission to do the most heinous sins you can possibly conceive of, right? And they want to have permission to do those things. And so we say, well, look, we're not going to do that. We're going to go to war with you, right? Yeah. But we are called to love the sinner. And we are called to say, well, but it is not love to say your sin gets a pass because I want you to feel cozy and warm and fuzzy. <laughs> Benevolent love is to say, that sin, that is sinful behavior, and that sinful behavior, I love you, and I do not want to see you burning in flames that are 40 feet over your head for eternity. So maybe you want to consider the fact that your behavior is sin. It's construed yep, as sin. Correct. If a man says he is without sin, he is a liar, right? Maybe the right, maybe the right word for sinner that I used should be lost right because those people who are lost can still find yah those people who reject yah and who are deceitful in their ways and want to bring forth hasatan as if he is yah know what they're doing that is the desolation that is the abomination you know and, and, and what I like about this passage as well, because it ends in Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, which kill the prophets and stone them that are sent unto you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen, as a, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. Your house is left to you desolate. I may, I say unto you, he shall not see me until the time comes when he shall say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Baruch Hashem Yahweh. Hallelujah. So, uh, you know, the point is, what I'm trying to bring is that the, 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 the false ones would, would throw the stone, right? Which Hasatan tempted Yahusha in the desert with to turn it into bread. But the bread is actually Yahusha, which is the revelation of the word. And he gives us the revelation. We don't take up, and we should never take up, the word as a stone and throw it at somebody. Just like he did with the woman who was caught in adultery. That's exactly right. Say, we should never use the word as a stone. Correct. And you always say that. And, and you know, as a, as a hammer, I think you always say. So, you know, 
take the take the bread that he gives you and feed it to the lost. That's great. But don't take the lost and throw them with the hard stone of the word because that is not Yahusha. Then Yahusha is not there. And I think it's the same thing. It's the same thing with uh, Islam. If you're ever ministering to, you know, testifying to a Muslim, when you quote the Quran to them, you're taking the Quran and hitting them in the face with it. You know, and that's why they greatly resent that. Do not quote the Quran to a Muslim because unless you can speak fluid Arabic, you need to keep your mouth shut when it comes to the Quran. And instead, talk to them about Mashiach and talk to them about the glory of the Gospels. It's a far better approach. And, you know, and again, the opportunity, again, when you when you go to um, expound these things to a person who is a stranger, use questions. You can use questions that open the door. If they want to come in, you can bring them in by using a question. Well, what do you think about that? You know? Did you see that news report? Yeah, I did see that. What do you think about that? Yeah. Do you think that you, I mean, are you one of those who thinks we might be in the end times? The end times, you know what I mean? Use a question, yeah. right? Use a question. Yeah, yeah. And in using the question, you can explore a person's beliefs and you get, and actually you get right to the root of their belief very quickly. And then, then you can right. say to them, whatever you need to say, well, you know, have, have you thought blah, 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 blah. But it's much more, you know, remember, use the tenets of persuasive speech. But the most persuasive speech there is, is what you do, not what you say. It's like I had a friend tell me once, he was talking to me about parenting. He said, children do what you do, not what you say. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's never the same. It's never this the case of parenting. And the parents are always saying, do what I do, not do what I say, not what I do. Right? Yeah. The parents want yeah, to yeah. contradict that. No, no, no. Don't do yeah. what I do. Do what I say. Guilty. 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 <laughs> but guess what? The kids are going to do what you do. Yeah. It's going to do what you do. And of course, the kids also do their own perception of what you do. They have their own perception, yeah. which is oftentimes very distorted. But that's what happens. Well, Chris, I okay. Melissa, I, think, I think Melissa's got one more thing that she wants to say quickly. Yeah? I just wanted to read from John 15, verse 4. Um, can, you, can you repeat that, Melissa? You're a little bit quiet. Sorry, yes. <laughs> John 15, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye. Except that you abide in me. Amen. Amen. And this is why he says, you know, Ani Hagafen, Atach Hanetzarin. I am the vine, you are the branches. And that blood of Yahusha flows through that vine to us, the branches. And in that blood, we are made whole. In that blood, we are healed. In that blood, we are given salvation. In that blood, we are eternal beings. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, thank you, Chris, and thank you, Melissa. By the way, Melissa, you've been nominated to record the Sefer, so you got a lot of work ahead of you. No. Oh, it's only 1.4 million words, right? <laughs> <laughs> but everybody loves your voice, so I think you would be a super blessing if you were to do that, but we'll see how it goes. Okay, okay. hi, Gabriella. How are you, Gabriella?
You know, if you put your screen down, we could actually see you. No, thank you. When we, when we come <laughs> to Finland to visit you, we have to be able to recognize you, you know. Okay, okay. Okay, all right. Hi. Hi, hi Gabriella. Hi. <laughs> I thought that you were going to take Rob first, but okay, um, okay. Um, I have a question and uh, maybe my husband wants to uh, have a word or two with you as too. Um, about uh, word syn synagogue, I can't find the word synagogue because I was um, trying to unsolve why there is the word gog end of synagogue. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very interesting, right? When you look at that, is that, you know, is the sin of gog uh, what's in the synagogue? I mean, it's a good question, right? And uh, the the synagogue, you know, I'm not quite sure. I mean, we do see, we actually, we don't see the synagogue listed at all in the Old Testament. There's no synagogue there, right? We get the synagogue only in the New Testament. And <clears throat> were there, you know, when you when you look at the Old Testament, there was a place of worship called the temple, the Heikal. The Heikal is what it was called. And the Heikal was present up until 70 AD. But after you, you know, what happens is, you know, and again, this is a bit historic and I'm going to go quickly through it. You know, with the destruction of the first temple, that ended Yehud. And in my opinion, it ended the blessing of Yah. But nonetheless, the second temple was built and Yah did re-inhabit that temple. But after the second temple was built, they fell away too. They fell away very, very quickly. The Torah practices fell away. They never really had a Levite priesthood in there working again. They never could restructure their lives around Moshe's Torah again. And it was kind of hit and miss. And ultimately, they were given a Greek leader. They were given Antiochus. And Antiochus came in and he put a ham up on the altar and he put a, a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies with his head on top of it. He turned the outer court into a gymnasium where they practiced Olympic sport in the nude. You know, all of this stuff happened at the temple. Well, why did that happen? Because the house of Yasharel had completely fallen away. It was a fallen away enterprise of following uh, the invasion of Alexander the Great. They completely fell away. Now, ultimately, there was a group of people who had lived in the northern part of the kingdom called the tribe of Makkah. The tribe of Makkah. The tribe of Makkah was the tribe of the 12th son of Nahor, the brother of Abraham. And these guys were not Abraham's seed. Okay, they were they were of Abraham's seed because they came from Darak, but they were Nakor's seed, the brother of Abraham, this tribe of Makkah. And this tribe of Makkah would rise up and they would say, We're not going to do the Greek way, we're going to do the old Torah way in their understanding. Now it's very important to recognize that the practice of the second temple after the Maccabees was in the understanding of the Maccabees not in the understanding of the ancient Levites, not in the understanding of the ancient Yahudim, but rather in the understanding of the Maccabees who were not of the house of Yaakov. So they elected to follow the Torah of Moshe. But the Torah of Moshe, again, they could not fit. This is why the Hanukkah has nine candles instead of the seven candle menorah, because they were following a modified version of the Torah And that modified version of the Torah would become more modified under Hillel the Elder and others 
who were not Yahudim. They were of other tribes and they wanted to become Jews. And so now you see for the first time, John Hyrcanus, who was the son of uh, Shimon Maccabee, would impose Judaism on the whole of the land by the point of the sword. So there was forceful circumcision done among the tribes of Edom, the tribes of Esau, that were living in the land, that had populated the land. Forceful conversion at the point of a sword, okay? And with that came the synagogue. With that came the Talmud. With that came the Mishnah. With that came the Gemara. With that came the codifying of the oral law. And Hillel the Elder, which was around 100 BC, said the era of the Torah is dead and the era of the Talmud is now ushered in. So the Talmud becomes the foundation of Judaism, not the Torah. So because of that, by the time you get to Paul, when Paul talks about, he doesn't talk about the instruction. If he was going to talk about the instruction, we'd have a different Greek word. But Paul talks about the law. And the word in Greek is nomos, or in its declension, nomu and noman, right? And so you see this word nomos. And so everything is in the law now. There's no instruction. In Hebrew, you know, you have hulk for law. You have mishpat for judgment. You have mitzvot for statute. You have peh for commandment. In Greek, we get nomos. That's it. Everything he talks about is nomos, some form of the law. Why? Because Paul is talking about the 10 pillars of Judaism, which include rabbinical authority, which includes the writing of the oral law, which includes the Mishnah, which includes a rabbinical opinion in the Gemara, which includes the, uh, the authority of the Talmud, right? And in Judaism, they don't read the, the, the Torah anymore. They read the rabbinical opinion about the Torah. They don't read the Torah. They read the rabbinical opinion. So this is where the, the, the rise of the synagogue, the teaching instruction, because you would be taught in a school, you know, which they, they call it, uh, uh, not a yeshiva, they call it a yeshiva, call it a yeshiva school. But these schools would become a formal thing called the synagogue. And the synagogues back in that time were quite small and they were round or oval and they required people to stand. There was no sitting. And they would segregate the women from the men and then the rabbi would get up in the middle and teach and do whatever his teaching was. And they'd have a place where you could put a scroll or a roll. Remember the roll of the Megillah is you hold it with one stem and you pull the, the paper, the parchment. Scroll is a sefer, and it has two handles, right? That's a sefer, a scroll. Megillah, one handle. And so this is what they would do. So the synagogue doesn't appear until you get post-John Hyrcanus and the rise of Judaism. And the ancient synagogues, you know, the most ancient relic they have, and they, they now have a new relic in Migdal, and they have the relic at uh, Kafra Nahum, or Capernaum. And when you go to Capernaum, They'll show you a synagogue that's this beautiful Roman thing with a big flat platform and, and columns and all this other stuff. Well, that was a third century Roman version of the synagogue. The real synagogue is what they call St. Peter's House, because, you know, everybody knows that that's the big building in town. That's got to be St. Peter's House. Well, it wasn't. It was a round constructed set of bricks that was that operated as the synagogue. And that's where they would go to meet for instruction. So. Uh, in terms now, 
when you talk to Jews now about the synagogue, they talk about the Kehila. They don't talk about the synagogue per se. I mean, of course, there are places that they call synagogues, but they talk about the Kehila. Now, the Kehila is Hebrew for ecclesia, what we would call in the Greek ecclesia. But in Hebrew, it's Kehila. <clears throat> and it means a gathering assembly, a gathering assembly, right? So you're right. Now, when you talk about the synagogue of Satan that's identified in the book of Revelation, they're talking about a particular kind of teaching, right? The synagogue of Satan by people who claim they are Jews, but are not. And we know the, this group of people as the Kazarian mafia, right? That are, they're name stealers. They take on the names, but they, they, those aren't their real names. They have other names, but they take on the identity of someone else in order to pose to someone else in order to obtain authority or to obtain profit. And if you look closely at the Kazarian Mafia, you'll see they're all profit takers. Does that answer your question, Gabriella? Yeah, yes, pretty pretty much. But um, I was wondering, those uh, if you put synagogue in Hebrew letters, what would be those letters? Oh, okay. Well, you want to speculate on that? Here, let me get, let me get up a whiteboard and let's see if we can do that. Right? It's going to be kind of hard, but let's see what we can do because what we see with the with with synagogue is that we've got a couple of choices right off the bat. So. One is, is the synagogue sacred or secular? If it's secular, then we use the Samic to open it up, right? Synagogue. But we're not going to do that here. We'll assume that it's more sacred. So we'll open up with the Shin, but we're going to dot it here, okay? Which means it's pronounced Sa, not Sha. Now, with the next thing was going to be, well, probably a Hirik Yod scene. So let's put in the Hirik Yod. We'll put in the Hirik here. So scene. And then we're going to put in the noon. We've got the noon. Scene. Na. Scene. Na. So maybe this is like with a Padtak and then an Ayan. And then Gog. So you're going to have the Gimel, the Vav with the Holom, or maybe you don't have the Vav, maybe you just put the Holom here. And then you have, of course, here, Gog. So this spelling here, Gimel, Vav, Gimel, is consistent with the spelling of Gog, right? Or technically pronounced Gog, okay? And this is seen or sheen. We're going to say it's seen because we're going to pronounce this S as an S. If we had the S over here, it would be sheen. Okay. But the ah, this ah here can be, it may, may appear as the ion, it may not. This could also, this could disappear because you have the ah here, seen, ah, gog, right? So that's basically, that's what I would guess is the spelling. Does that help? Yes, because it's easier to translate to uh, Paleo-Hebrew because, for example, that Ein letter, it's an I, and then there's Gog, and you know where I'm going with this. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you're talking about with the, the Paleo, Ein is, you know, 
Yeah. Yeah. It's the eye, right? Sometimes, you know, sometimes. So I keep studying it and I'm trying to find similar words. What would be like giving direction? What that word is like trying to find, trying to express. Yeah, I do understand, Gabrielle. I mean, because when you're doing this kind of study and looking at that, there is a lot to be gleaned out of that. I mean, it's a difficulty because, you know, you can find the modern word synagogue if you go into Google and, you, you know, you ask. It will show you the spelling that you get in, um, you know, they'll, they'll just tell you how to spell it in Hebrew. But in terms of the Paleo-Hebrew, you know, I can't get into that right now in discussing the, the whole event of synagogue, but we do see some evidence here that there is a relationship to the spiritual Gog. Because remember, when we talk about Gog and Magog, Magog could actually be a, once again, a prefix, Magog, or from Gog. So the name Magog is from Gog. And what is Gog? But Gog could be a very much a spiritual authority that is someplace that has captured the nail between it, right? Someplace that has captured the nail between it. But anyway, I mean, it's a good question. Now, did you say your husband, Daniel, had a question? Yeah, too? just a second, please. Okay. Hi, critics. Hi, so, Daniel. Um, good, thank you. So I'm just about commenting about the last or the previous videos Gabriella sent you about the tanks or uh, our arsenal is moving towards the east borderline, which yes. is not true because um, it was, uh, according to our government news, it was going to the mid-Finland to the war maneuvers. And uh, and so far we, have, we are only just waiting for the news or the results from the NATO application at the moment. It should come come soon. Now, so the tanks are being shipped out of, of Finland? Oh, it's shipping in Finland. Shipping in Finland, yeah. Uh, well, I heard that they were being deployed along the Russian border, but that's not what you're hearing? I, I, well, according to my new, um, the, what the reporter says and uh, what I'm reading from my inside the government websites, they're just moving inside the Finland for war maneuvers. Okay. Well, you know what, Daniel, let's just take a moment right now to pray for peace in Finland. Can we do that? Sure. Okay. Let's do that. Heavenly father, we lift up uh, our prayers to you now joining in fellowship. And we want to lift up those people and those nations that are involved um, where this crisis is emerging that you would look upon the people of Finland and you would look upon this nation and bring a miraculous understanding and a miraculous peace to the people that are involved in this confrontation. That Finland has lived at peace with Russia for many, many years now and may continue to be so. And may there be peace among the Baltics in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, that those nations would survive and be able to remain autonomous but be at peace with their neighbors. Father, we pray that you would just bring a, a divine intervention, if you will, among all of this and bring peace and shalom to the leadership and understanding eyes that can see and ears that can hear 
that they might be able to reconcile one with the other, and that we might be able to return as a nation to a nation where you are glorified. We give thanks to you now in what you are doing in this world. On behalf of these petitions, we lift them to you now in the name of Yahushua. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Daniel, for your report, brother. Thank you for, uh, for joining us. Uh, it's great to have you with us and uh, to bring a report like that. We're very prayerful uh, for Finland that, um, you know, uh, Finland was the one that brought us all the Nokias. And how can we forget that, right? <laughs> and, you know, and I have to tell you something else, too. You know, this Zephyr that I'm holding right here, this is the Millennial Edition. Okay, so it's a fat edition in the large print. This is printed exclusively in Britain because they're the only ones who can manage the book and even they're having trouble. But they're the only ones who can manage the book. So this is printed in Beckles, England. But it is printed using Finnish paper because all, all, all the paper, all the paper that comes into Britain for purposes of publishing now is, comes out of Finland. So you guys have to remain at peace because we need to get that paper. Okay, now just keep that in mind. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just telling you. Indeed. Square, square up Indeed, here, brother. Shabbat okay. shalom. Okay, shalom. All right, thank you and blessings. Okay, Rob, Robinoff, speak. And Rob speaketh. <laughs> hey, Rob. Yeah. Um, amen. 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 It's beautiful here. I'm in my uh, camel shorts and flip-flops. Uh, my odometer just uh, spun over today. Uh, I'm at 49 now. <laughs> um, Time to get uh, out got, that old screwdriver. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Turn it back a little bit. <laughs> yeah. it, just for some background for this week, um, uh, amazing. Uh, Yah's giving me some revelations and stuff. Um, and obviously Hasatan's trying to steal them, those revelations. Um, and you'll see here in a moment. Um, but uh, this was dropped into my spirit. And then I went in and looked into the scriptures to see if it was true. Um, I have um, two witnesses on it already. Um, so um, I... Yah's giving me approval to go ahead and just speak it. It's in the word, so we'll we'll we'll, we'll bring it forth. But uh, I was asking Yah how I how to how do I show this what you what you showed me? Um, read my word, read my word, uh, and then uh, he said to pray before uh, pray before I do it. And I'll pray, and then um, so I just I, I went to Matthew Matthew uh, six nine. I'll, I'll just read that prayer right now, and we'll we'll begin there, and we'll go on a little journey here really quick, and. Uh, I pray that Yah would bless this and that everybody could see what um, Yah wants us to see. Uh, be Let every word uh, um, that is not of Yah fall away and every word that is of Yahuwah be lifted up and bound to the hearts and the tables and the, and the places and the, the brothers and sisters that they would be blessed with this knowledge, wisdom and understanding uh, that they would be successful in working out their salvation with fear and trembling. In Yahushua's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, uh, Matthew 6, 9, I'll just read the prayer. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father who established Yeshua in the heavens, exalted is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as in the heavens. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who transgress against us. And lead us not into the evil inclination, but deliver us from the outer darkness. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, this word that uh, it was, was used in the Hebrew, translated in the Hebrew, Hebrew Matthew, inclination, it was really the definition of that inclination, just for, just for reference here. This is just the first thing I punched in. A person's natural tendency or urge to act or feel in a particular way disposition or propensity. So this is coming, this inclination is coming from the inside of the individual, okay? Uh, and, that's, and then it speaks here uh, uh, of outer darkness, okay? Because you asked me the question um, a few weeks ago, this evil Ruach, okay? Yao's showing me some stuff and I was like, I don't know where this is. I don't know what you're showing me. So, so he, he, this is where, the, and lead us not into the evil inclination, but deliver us from the outer darkness. Okay, now we'll go to John uh, 2, verses 24 to 25. And this is setting everything up here. And it says, But Yahushua did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Question, what's in man? Now, we'll, we'll go to the next scripture now. Um, my, I'll just do an, uh, um, when, when, when Hasatan, uh, the evil Ruach, I call it, uh, or the uh, dark Ruach deceiver, spoke to Hua, Eve, um, he made a declaration against Yah. And yes, then did. She, she listened and she listened to him. And by her action of eating of that fruit, she allowed, she agreed with that declaration by her action. Just like us keeping Torah, we can say things spiritually do, but physically we're responsible for things we do physically, right? If you love me, keep my commands. Physically show me that you're doing these things. Do my things, he says. Okay, so we go to, so we have that understanding what what happened so, so something entered in i'm saying uh, at this time the evil ruach the the breath the evil rock the the deceiver entered in at that point now we'll go to um matthew 4 uh no pardon me matthew 3 um verses 11 to the end and then Matthew 4. And I'm going to work my way through this here. And I pray you see what, what I see. Um, according to the will of Yah. Yeah, so this is Matthew 3, 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who comes after me is mightier than I. Whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Ruach HaKodesh and with fire. Whose fan is in his hand. And he... And he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then came Yeshua from Galahal to the Ardan, unto Yehokanon, to be baptized of him. Question, be baptized, interesting. But Yehokanon for, uh, forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of you and come 
to and, and come you to me. And Yahusha, being hasty, um, Yahusha answering, saying unto him, suffer to be so now. And I'm wondering what's going on now, now, okay? For thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. Now remember, Yeshua never asked us to do anything more than what he's done. He's our example. Then he suffered him, he's baptized or immersed. The, then, and Yeshua, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Ruach Elohim descending like a dove and lightning upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my Yikah, in whom I am well pleased. This is where it gets really heavy here. Okay. Matthew 4. Then was Yeshua led up of the Ruach into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Okay, Yeshua's in the Ruach. Okay. He's being led by the Ruach. This is all happening in the spirit realm, in the Ruach. Throughout the movies where Hasatan is standing there in the black cape on the edge of the cliff, um, all these, uh, throw out that idea, throw out that, uh, the, the, what the world's thrown, thrown at you. So we're in the spirit realm. Then Yeshua led up of the Ruach into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungry. Scripture says that these kind only come out through prayer and fasting. Okay. Now remember that we were all aware of that. And when the tempter came to him, okay, the tempter's coming to him right after he fasted. So I'm saying that I'll say it now, this evil Ruach came into the flesh. Now everybody hold, hold off. Let me speak until I'm finished. This evil Ruach came into the flesh through um, uh, Yeshua's mother, earthly mother, bloodline, flesh. He had a perfect uh, father, Ruach, so he had the full anointing and the full everything to deal with this situation. And now watch what, watch this. And when the tempter came to him, so the tempter comes out of his flesh, and I can prove that further down here. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if you, if you be the son of Elohim, command that these stones be made bread. And he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahuwah. Then the devil took him up into the, into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. Now you got to question this. Holy city. What is, what is this evil Ruach dealing with this holy city? Okay, so he's close to the Ruach of Yah and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. And he said unto him, if you be the son of Elohim, cast yourself down, for it is written. He shall give his angels charge concerning you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest any time you shall, you shall dash your foot against a stone. Yahushua said unto him, it is written again, you shall not tempt Yahuwah Elohaika. And again, the devil took him up into an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Another question, glory, like all the awesomeness, all the awesomeness, true awesomeness is of Yah. And said unto him, all these things will I give you if, I, if you will fall down and worship me. Then said Yeshua unto him, get you hence, Satan, for it is written. 
So he's describing the situation. So this, this is the Ruach he's dealing with. You shall worship Yahuwah Elohaika, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. The devil left his physical body. like It was in him. And behold, angels came and ministered into him, unto him. Now, if angels didn't need to, you know, you have been through spiritual warfare. You literally need angels to minister to you because you're all beat up. This wasn't a physical confrontation. This was a spiritual confrontation that just like each and every one of us has dealt with. And I say and I testify that in the bloodline, came to, the, 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 the evil rock came to the bloodline. And that's why these scriptures all fit. Yahusha knew what was in the bloodline. He knows what's at this, the battle, that war that we all fight. You and I, men, women, and children, this is what's in our blood. And this is what the enemy is going after to decree and declare what he thinks is his. Unless we declare what, declare and confess Yahusha HaMashiach. And that's where the name is very important. That's why a couple of years ago, or several, many, I don't know how many, it's been many years, uh, with the de declaration of Elena, I love you, Brother Pigeon, for declaring the name because it confirmed stuff that Yah was showing me, but nobody else in the world could confirm it or point it to, to me. Uh, I, I believe this, this, this is opens up a whole bunch of doors now. Now we can understand spiritual warfare. We can understand these things about Yah loving the sinner because we know what was in the bloodline. It entered in, and even after Noah, um, the eight people were saved, that was still in the blood. So Hasatown still yeah. had a legal right to, and, and I also, I, I testify that um, uh, Azazel, the spirit behind Azazel is this dark Ruach, the deceiver. Um, that's yeah, the I mean, gist Rob, of it. Listen, I think your word is a good word. Now, you know, and I'll, I'll, and let me just say this to you about this, because what we do see is, and you know, and Paul reflects on this and gives a substantial witness to it. The, know, thorn, says, the thorn in the side. Hold yeah. The thorn in the side. The yeah. thorn in the side. The flesh wants to do this and the spirit wants to do that. And the flesh is doing what it's doing because, of course, I mean, if, if, if uh, Hasatan, if his invasion was cast out of the world, then why do we still die? Right? Every one of us are still going to die and we die because death came into the world because of that sin. And so, yes, the flesh has its command and the flesh and, but uh, Satan's legal right, he doesn't have, you know, he has the claim he has from a legal point of view was a claim predicated upon deception. You know, yes, you will not surely die. That was a bald faced lie, right? He deceived who, uh, and it even the word deception is even used in that passage by saying, you will not surely die. Now, in the legal world, in the common law, that's known as uh, fraud in the factum. In other words, it's a, uh, because it began with the deception, there's no binding contract. There's no binding contract. This is why we can lose that binding contract by ending, entering into a covenant that is established by Yahusha. And he says, I'm going to give you my covenant which is if you obey my commands, I will be your Elohim and you will be my children. So this is this covenant that takes us out of this bondage to Hasatan. It's a contract readily broken, easily broken. Mm -hmm. But if you continue to accept the fraud that is given to you by, by Hasatan, then you continue to dwell in death. 
And so, yeah, I mean, the point you're making that, you know, and it's an important point because, you know, don't tell it to the Catholic Church because they hold the opinion that Mary was sinless and ascended to heaven, right? Which is, was derived from a third century Gnostic work called the Antimillion of James and should never been have, have been accepted as doctrine. And so as a consequence, you're right. She came from a human bloodline and in that human bloodline lies death, right? Lies this fundamental sin whose propitiation could only be had by the obedience of Yahusha. There was no propitiation otherwise. You can kill all the goats and all the bulls and all the rams and everything else you want to kill and sacrifice them until the cows come home. You will never propitiate for the sin of Adam and Hua. You'll never do it. The only propitiation was the propitiation anticipated from the foundation of the world that Mashiach would die by the nail that he would die by the nail, that his blood would be shed, and this would be propitiation for all sin, including the failure of Adam. That's why Paul refers to him as the second Adam. Because where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded, and the propitiation was obtained. And so, <clears throat> yeah, I know, you're, I know you're, you're saying something that it would be quite alarming in the Catholic Church in saying that there was sin in the bloodline of Miriam. But I think if there most assuredly was, and in fact, if you want to look, if you want to look at more, more evidence of that, look at the prayer they call the Magnificat, right? Where Miriam is told that she is pregnant with the son of the Mashiach. And she says, my soul glorifies Yahweh, right? For he has anointed, you know, this prayer, it's called the Magnificat. <clears throat> at any rate, <clears throat> she gives this prayer. Why would she say she needs a savior in that prayer? Why does she need a savior? Because she knew she too was a sinful person, that she had sin in her life. There was sin in that bloodline. There was, there's no question. And the fact that, you know, you're pointing out that this is a much more spiritual thing than a physical thing. And I think you're probably right, because then Yahushua was led up of the Ruach. He was led, and, you know, of the Ruach can also mean in the Ruach, you know, depending on how you look at the yeah. verbs, or, you know, et cetera. Yeah. And so, you know, you do have this idea of, you do have this idea that this is a, a spiritual thing taking place, right? A spiritual thing. And, but we also know that this word Satan means adversary, right? The first time the word Satan appears in the Hebrew scripture, it is a, and Yas and an angel as an adversary to Balak, right? The angel that stands in front of Balak with a sword, right? That's talking to his ass, you know, and saying, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to kill this guy if you come any further. And the ass won't walk any further. Well, that angel is identified, and we talks about as an adversary. The word there is Satan. It's Satan. And we don't recognize that Satan is an adversary. It's an adversary. That's what it is. And if you recognize that Satan is an adversary, this is why we're like up here in Kenai five years ago. The Kenai City Council allowed somebody to come in and give a prayer to Satan as an invocation for the council. Now, you know, if I'd have been down there, I'd have said to those guys, you know, you guys are the dumbest people on the planet Earth. You can sit here and say, oh, we're just, we're just sharing a religious expression. Well, you're stupid people because you just, did, you just prayed for adversity in your community. You know, you just prayed, we want wickedness and adversity to come to our community. Well, guess what they got in Kenai? Nothing but wickedness and nothing but adversity. We were talking about it last night. There was a woman... I got a little instability here. Can you guys hear me? Am I locked up? Yeah. Okay. 
you can hear me. There, uh, this woman owned two restaurants down there. And she said, Kenai became so evil that people would routinely come in and order food and then walk out without paying. People would steal stuff right and left. I mean, there was absolutely no, no control, no counsel, no nothing. It's just become an evil and wicked place that people have fled as a result of them invoking the adversary. Oh, we have the adversary here. And you can see that the tempter here that they called the devil, and in Greek, that's diabolos, diabolos. When you see the tempter there that they're calling the devil, you're seeing what? You're seeing an adversary. You're seeing an adversary rise up. I am going to bring things contrary to righteousness. And I'm going to, I'm going to bring this adversity to you. And this is what he did. And, you know, and, he, and, he, and he tries to tell him, look, he's trying to tell him, look, why don't you change these stones into bread, right? Why? Because what? Because the stones are going to be living stones from which the temple of righteousness is going to be constructed. And Satan wants to have that converted to bread so that the flesh can consume that as food. And Mashiach's response is, oh, no, 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 no. Man does not live by bread alone. In other words, the man is not going to be fed by bread alone. You think bread is the only thing the man's going to be interested in, serving the flesh. But man lives by the word of Yahweh, right? Then he says, well, look, since you're the son of Elohim, why don't you commit suicide? Let's see if the angels will pick you up from there, right? Now commit suicide, kill yourself. And when Mashiach says, nope, you shall not tempt Yahweh Eloheka, the devil makes up his mind right there. Okay, then I'm going to kill you. Since you're not going to commit suicide, I'm going to kill you. We'll do it. We'll take care of it, right? And then he finally says, look, if you just worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. I have dominion over all of these people on earth, right? I'll give them all to you, right? And Mashiach is saying, you know, first of all, it's not up to you to give me anything, right? You shall worship Yahweh Eloheka only because I will be given all these kingdoms, not, not from you. I'll be given all of these kingdoms. I will become king over all of this and it won't be coming from you, right? And so again, you know, you have the devil lying to him. Interesting enough, uh, with 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 uh, Hasatan saying he has dominion all over these people. The reason why is because he's in every one of us. The original the evil ruach is in every one of us, and that's what we war with all the time. It's not Yeshua was the only one uh, that was able, with the full measure of his Father, to cast this thing out. And we all deal with certain measures, and we obviously get better and better to the point. That's why Yah says this flesh can't even. Uh, can't cross the threshold into the kingdom because this right. flesh because it is a vessel for Hasatan. This is yeah. something the secret secret societies understand. That's why they feed our little children all these things to entice um, um, feelings to try to make that evil all, grow. all right. up that evil from deep within. They and, feed and that serpent. They feed that serpent. Yeah. Yes, and this serpent. is where you know I've, I've believed this for a long time now. The beast rising from the earth is a man, woman, or child. Yes, they have leaders and speaking and talking heads, but that beast is a man, woman, or child, because the child, you know, being, you know, past a certain age, just doing evil, is that that's the beast coming rising from the earth. And they and they're creating a situation of perdition, uh, complete, uh, they're they're not redeemable. Um we're well, now, but, now Rob, I'll tell you, when we talk about not redeemable, now scripture does say that there's, you know, that chaff is going to grow up with the wheat, tares are going to grow up with the wheat, right? Yes, yes, there but, are. So, and, and that's but this is get. not our, this is not our discernment. This is not our yeah. discernment. This is, yeah. this is Yah's discernment. He will come to judge the living and the dead. 
all, yeah, I agree. All we have to do is be aware of it, though. Be, yeah. We have to be, we have an understanding and be aware of it. And we seek to say, bring Yah and his gospel, his Basora, to everyone that crosses our path. Because it's not a mistake that anybody crossing our path. Um, uh, but this is an interesting situation. We need to understand this, uh, that the secret societies, the knowledge that they have is nothing secret. They just know what's in an individual who's not confessing Yahushua HaMashiach. And that's why we run into this situation where J-E-S-U-S, many people are calling J-E-S-U-S uh, uh, the anti-Messiah. And, and, and by all means, and the character of that character that goes along with it, yeah, fits scripture as anti, in place of, in place of Yahushua. In place of Yahushua. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, again, you know, and I, I appreciate this uh, this testimony, Rob. What we find out is what the New Testament is loaded, absolutely yes. loaded. With, and I think we've explored that kind of here today that the New Testament is loaded with information, loaded with instruction, loaded with concepts that we need to kind of get a handle on. Very difficult. It's very difficult. It's much more difficult text than the Old Testament, which is has, has its own challenges. But the New Testament is much more difficult. There are 22 mysteries that are set forth in the New Testament and trying to understand the mystery of iniquity, or I tell you all a mystery and we will all be raised incorruptible. You know, there's a lot of, there's 22 mysteries set forth in the New Testament. And this kind of instruction here, you know, I mean, there's there's many places where the things Mashiach does, you have to ask yourself the question, what? What did he just say? What did he just do? What is this again? And so these things do unfold. And it's one of the beauties, really, of the faith, because a lot of people say, oh, I used to be a Christian and then I got smart. Right. Then I got educated and realized how dumb that stuff was. No, what was dumb was your Sunday school teacher. Right. Who should have buried you. Your Sunday school teacher should have buried you with the most difficult concepts known in the New Testament and then sat there and said to swim. You know, the old, the old, the, when you, when you didn't have to swim, your dad tossed you into the deep end. So let's see if he can swim now, you know, and, you know, yeah. same kind of, same kind of an idea, give him the most difficult concept in, in the New Testament, say, now swim, Where, since you're so smart, since when you turn 18 and you know it all, you're going to realize how smart you were and how much smarter you are than scripture. It's like I ask, I ask these New Testament pastors, oh, I'm a New Testament pastor. We don't rely on the Old Testament. Okay, well, then what was going on in Mark 8? What do you mean? Well, Mashiach says, hey, don't you recall? I took five loaves and fed 5,000 and you gathered 12 baskets. And I took seven loaves and fed 4,000 and you gathered seven baskets. What part of that don't you understand? And I just like to ask the Christian pastor, why don't you tell me what that means? Tell me what that means. Since you guys are so New Testament oriented, maybe you can explain. Well, yeah, that just means that there was plenty of a word left over after. Then why did he say 12? Why did he take five? And why did he say 12? Why did he take seven and end up with seven? Why is it an exact number? Why didn't he just say, I took some food, fed a bunch of people, and we had a lot left over? Why didn't he say that? He was very specific. And he asked the disciples, what part of that don't you understand? Answer, all of it. And these are some of the difficult concepts that just appear in the New Testament, right? Okay, you explain it. What, what's the teaching? Well, it's just the same thing with this teaching here in, in Matthew 4. You know, this temptation of, of Hasatan in, in the wilderness. It's a difficult passage, right? To unwrap it. It's a difficult I, passage, you know? And even the Our I, Father I, prayer is a difficult passage to unwrap. But I, I, one I, thing, I'm, I'm going to share one last thing with you, Rob. Mashiach says, pray in this manner. 
and he prays to our father. You see this? You see a lot of people in the Christian church, they open their prayers with dear Jesus, please do this for me and do this for me and do that for me. But Mashiach says, your prayers are to be directed to the father. Yeah. And who does he pray to in John 17, right? He prays to Yahweh. That's who he prays yeah. to. I have mentioned you. I have declared your name to them and will declare it. Right? This is him saying, I've declared your name. Amen. I was dealing with a, 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 an individual years ago, and that was, one, that was my question to him. Uh, when Yeshua went off to pray, did he pray in his name or did he pray in his father's name? He prayed, they, he prayed to the father. No question. They, I mean, there's they no question. That. Yeah. Pigeon, they couldn't answer that question. They froze. They couldn't answer the question. Yeah. Well, this business of freezing in the Christian church and then and then just leaving the frozen, the ice cube in the brain, right? Just leave the ice cube in the brain. Don't ever answer it. Then you go to your you go to your pastor. You say, Can you answer this question? The pastor says, see me after church. And then <laughs> that you means go, he doesn't know. <laughs> love to talk to him. How are you doing? How are you doing? Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I heard your question. Uh, did you have a question? You know, just blow by him, right? Blow him off. And then, and then if you ask the question twice, then one of the elders says, you know, you need to find another church. Right? Amen. Anyway, anyway I mean, for, for the brothers and sisters, I mean, this is uh, what we went through here in, in Matthew is a template for every individual. So we can't say that the Messiah, oh, he just came here. He was perfect. And he had no battles and wars. He just had to die on the cross. No, 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 no. He had to deal with it. He was tempted. Yes, he yes. was tempted. And, you know, and not only was he tempted, but he was also murdered. Right. Yes. He knows death. He knows death. We should never forget that part. Amen. Okay, Rob. Well, thank, you, thank, you this, thank you for this, man. Thank you for having the courage to come forward with it. I appreciate it. This is it's a, it's a it was been a, it's been a heavy weight on me. And just a revelation um, because we have we run around with this situation thing in our head is like Yeshua is perfect. And, and yes, he is now. But he did suffer. I mean, even it was a suffer to be so now he was anxious. He knew this. He, he had to get immersed and go through the process to have this last little. And then what happened? Then he's immediately, he's immediately, he begins preaching the gospel and not until after he did that, you know. And there was lots of stuff before that, but he started preaching. He got delivered, and boom, he brought forth the gospel. And he started did miracles on the next the next chapter is miracles. Right, it's next. Yeah, you're right. And he again proclaimed the gospel in Luke. When you see the same passage in Luke four, you see the same testimony. And right after that, he went to the synagogue on Shabbat, as was his custom, and opened up the scroll by saying. <laughs> The gospel, right? <laughs> Ruach Yahweh Elohim is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the good news, right? I mean, it, 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 there was nothing about it that was untrue. Every bit, every bit of it was true. Amen. Right? Amen. The revel, the revelation of this is so. I don't think we'd even comprehend it. Uh, I'm still wrapping my mind around it this week. Uh, and it's something we all need to move on from now and pray on it and let y'all reveal to us. The, the, I have more uh, revelations, but y'all is working on those right now. Um, well, give I, us a report next week. Give us a report next week, Rob. And because it'd be good to have a follow-up on this. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, there's, there's all through scripture, all through scripture is this example. And, and it's just like the two witnesses. When you brought forth the two witnesses, the word and the ruach, we see, well, we see the, the, you know, the word and the ruach. I see it everywhere now. It's, it's not, it, it's, it's everywhere in the scriptures, the word and the ruach. When, when Yah makes a declaration, well, what's that? The word. And then how did he make the declaration? Well, through his ruach, he spoke it. Yeah. The word and the ruach. Two witnesses. The word and the ruach. Yeah, the two witnesses. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I, I pray this blesses everybody so we can hurry along because Yeshua is not far off. He's gonna manifest. <laughs> Amen, brother. Amen. Listen, I'm glad you're in your I'm glad you're in your flip-flops today. You you're it's Amen. about time you got a little bit of summer, my friend. Amen. Another witness to that is James 4, 1 and 2. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not, and on and on. So James 4, 1. Is Absolutely. That's the yeah, James, James is saying the same thing, right? The flesh is at war with the spirit. The flesh desires this stuff that Hasatan believes can be fed with bread. We can feed the flesh. Convert your living stones of the temple into bread that the flesh can feed can feed on right and and the instruction is what feed your flesh feed your flesh now the unborn the people that are spiritual and born that have not been born again they feed their flesh they're only interested in feeding their flesh the flesh is all there is the flesh is the beginning and the end you see these guys that want to live forever in transhumanism all they concern themselves is with is the flesh they don't concern themselves with the ruach because the flesh is all they have so they feed the flesh and here satan is saying Convert your living stones of the temple into bread that we that the flesh could consume it because the flesh is all that matters. And Mashiach's response is, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. Amen. That has more impact now that I that I understand that, that there was evil warring in Yeshua's flesh. There, there that uh understanding what Yeshua is saying now has more impact. It has more relevance. It has more like, uh, how do you say, I mean, this is just, this opens up a lot of stuff. I I, I get revelations and then I got to go read through the, I got to read all the scriptures again. And yeah. the Sefer has like Asher and Enoch. 1. So 1. 1. 1.4 million road. words. 1.4 million words, Rob, start at the top, work your way down. Oh, oh man. Uh, I have my, I, I am, I'm, I, you know, I'm, in a couple months and this Sefer is ready. For, I'm ready for a new one. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Well, thank you so much, Rob. Thanks, Amen. brother. And Be we'll blessed. Forward, we're going to be look for your uh, your report next week too, okay? Amen. I'm waiting for Yah to, to draw in, you know, do what he does. I'm just yeah. being a be. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. Hey, let's go to Dina. Dina Golrud, how are you? Hi, Dr. P. <laughs> Hi, Dina. Good to see you. Um, <laughs> we have a question about head coverings and if we should be wearing them or especially we have uh, curiosity about uh, those verses about like the fallen angels and stuff. If you can expound on that, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, that's first Corinthians 11 and first Corinthians 11 is a, a passage that is always, you know, interesting, right? So, we looked at some of this passage and we found out that the Greek is contorted and distorted. All right. 
So I'm going to share with you out of this effort, 1 Corinthians 11. So be followers of me, even as I also am of Mashiach. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. So here he is saying, Paul is saying, keep the Torah, right? But I would have you know that the head of every man is Mashiach and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Mashiach is Elohim. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head uh, down, dishonors his head, not covered. Having his head down, dishonors his head. Not every woman who prays or prophesies with an uncovered head disgraces the head itself, but it is a disgrace for those who are shaven. Now, most people don't want to admit this, but there are many people, particularly in the Jewish world, women shave their head. And you'll see them quite often. They, they come out in public wearing a turban, a very tight turban on their head. And then uh, if they have formal things to do, they put on different wigs to wear. But a lot of Jewish women shave their head. They shave their head. So what Paul is saying is if you're a woman who has your head shaved and you pray or prophesy with an uncovered head, that disgraces the head itself. Verse six, for if the woman is sheared, yet wholly covered, such women are not obscene when wholly covered. Now, if you read in your old book, basically says if a woman shows up in, in church with short hair, shave her head. And I've asked many, many pastors this, you know, your wife's coming here with a new hairdo that's very, very short. Do we shave her head now or later? Right? Given the passage in Paul, I've been, you know, almost kicked out of churches uh, for, for even raising the issue. I thought you guys followed Paul. That's what it says. But that's not what it says. When you read the Greek, it says something entirely different, right? Now, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much he is the image and glory of Elohim, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man, according to the creation story that a rib was, a bone was taken from Adam and the woman was created. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in Yahweh. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of Elohim. Judge in yourselves, is it coming that a woman prays unto Elohim uncovered? Question. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. So what this is saying is, is that a woman's hair can act as a cover. If she has long hair, a woman's hair can act as a cover. But the difficulty is, is that a woman's long hair, according to Paul, was that which tempted the watchers because the watchers saw women and were tempted by women. And they were tempted by, and this is a very much a direct reference. I mean, verse 11, 10 is a direct woman. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels, because the long hair of a woman tempts an angel, okay? The short hair is, uh, is you can have short hair, you can even have your head shaved. But if you're gonna have your head shaved or you're gonna have short hair, you must cover to pray or prophesy. You don't have to do that if you have long hair. However, 
what what Paul is saying throughout this passage is that judging yourselves is a company that a woman prays unto Elohim uncovered. Now, you know, when you're in the Orthodox churches in Eastern Orthodoxy, those women will not enter the church without their head covered. And even in the Pentecostal churches and Baptist churches in the Eastern tradition, women cover their head before they go inside the church to pray or to prophesy. Oftentimes I see women doing videos where they're going to prophesy on the video. And a woman whose head is covered when she prophesies on a video, to me, just strikes me as spiritually correct. And it tells me that she's much more in tune with the true prophecy than being out of tune with the true prophecy. Now, should a woman cover her head? I mean, I'm telling you what I believe the scripture says. I spent a long time with this passage with, with 1 Corinthians 11. And because I found it to be this idea of shaving a woman's head because she prayed or prophesied without her head covered. It's not what Paul was teaching at all. It was just ludicrous. What he was saying is, if you come into church and your head is shaved, then cover it before you pray or prophesy, right? But a woman's hair is given to her for a covering. So I think it's permissible and okay for a woman to pray or prophesy if she has uncut hair. And I don't mean growing down to your feet either. I'm just talking, I'm talking about hair that is, you know, you know what I'm talking about, a woman's long hair when it's, you know, down to the shoulders or longer. But when you're talking about shorter hair, then a woman should cover her head when she prays or prophesies, right? So that's what I think the passage is saying. However, there's also this aspect of covering your head to remove temptation from others, right? To, to remove temptation. Now, he's talking about primarily tempting the angels, but a woman's long hair can also tempt other men, right? And so this way he says, neither was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels, you see. So here he's saying, the woman was created for the man, cover the head that, that she represents this continuous authority from Mashiach through the man to the woman, right? Mm -hmm. And so that these are kind of the aspects of this whole thing about covering. Now, I think that uh, a woman's head when it's covered is extremely beautiful and it strikes me as being something quite a powerful, you know, power on her head, right? He's talking about power on her head when a woman covers her head. But does that mean I want women in burqas? You didn't hear me say that, right? And what I'm trying to tell you is that when you look at this passage, you can see that, first of all, you're talking about praying or prophesying. Uh, two, you're talking about the hair acting as a cover without having a cover on your head. And three, you're, you're talking about if your head is shaved, then you must cover if you're going to pray or prophesy among the assembly. Okay. So that's what I'm reading here. Chris, did you have something on that, brother? Yeah, may I add something there? Um, uh, in, in number six, the, the, the vow of a Nazir. Right? Mm -hmm. It says here, uh, and Yahweh spoken to El Moshe saying, speak unto the children of Yasharal and say unto them, when either a man or a woman shall separate themselves to a vow, a vow of a Nazir to separate themselves unto Yahweh, 
He shall separate himself from wine and strong Greek drink and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes nor eat the moist grapes and dried grapes. All the days of his, of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree from the kernels even to the husk. In the days of his vow of his separation, he shall, there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled in which he separates himself unto Yahweh, and he shall be holy, and he shall let the locks of his hair, of his head grow. And then obviously, uh, when it comes to the end of his vow, then he goes to the synagogue, or rather to the, to the, to the priest, and then it says in verse 9, if every man um, die very suddenly. Uh, okay, when he's defiled. Okay, when he's defiled, or he comes to the end, then on the seventh day he shall shave it. So the, he's talking about the woman as well. So the woman and the man will shave their head. Now, uh, what's the beginning passage there again, Chris? That is uh, Numbers six, Doc. Number six, one. Number six. So when. When uh, you know, and then we see that again in Acts, where uh, Paul shaves his head three times because right. of the vow that was because upon him. Has red vow, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, again, the um, there is an issue, Chris. I have to tell you in the Hebrew about whether or not the Nazarite vow applies to women. There is an issue on that. Okay, but nonetheless, we do see it is the practice. You can go to Israel today and you can see many, many women that have shaved heads. It is a practice. Yeah. And it was most certainly a practice in Corinth. There were women doing it in Corinth for sure. And because you had a situation in Corinth where Corinth was the most wicked city in, in Greece. I mean, Greece was wicked. But Corinth was the most wicked city in Greece. That's where all the sailors came to port. And they had the Temple of Apollo sitting up on the hill which was a meat slaughtering plant. They were slaughtering meat to idols. And at this meat slaughtering plant that smelled like blood everywhere, there were over a thousand prostitutes working. About 70% of them were male prostitutes. And so the women prostitutes that were working up on the temple would shave their head to look like men, or they would cut their hair to look like men. And when these people repented, and came into the synagogue, which, which was just down the hill from the temple. When they came into the synagogue, Paul told them, if you're going to come in here and repent, fine. But if you have a shaved head, you've got to cover your head before you can pray or prophesy. Yeah. So, you know, so you see this, you see the applicability, and maybe there's Nazarite applicability as well, assuming that it was meant for both men and women. Maybe there was yeah. Nazarite ap applicability. Maybe. But um, I know that um, I know that in Melissa's family, she she has a, a line. Um, anyway, and and we've been to uh, bar mitzvahs and so on. And uh, well, I don't know if I can show you. Yet. This is Melissa's hair, right? I mean, it's yes, there you like, go. All right, so yeah, she, she's, she's not sitting there with shaved head. Is that what you're trying to tell us? Yeah, no, no, no. She's got long hair, right? But um, all right, I wanted to make sure that I'm just they've, kidding. They they've offered her uh, quite quite a lot of money on a couple of occasions. For her hair, so um, interesting, you know, because they do do that. They uh, they they want um, they want natural long hair, which they make wigs of. Yeah, and so you can see. So anyway, this is. Uh, thank you for asking this question, Dina. 
I think it was a very good question. It's a troublesome question of, of for women. What's what's traditionally written in First uh, Corinthians eleven? Very troublesome passage for a lot of women, and it's a troublesome passage for a lot of men too, because they don't understand the responsibility they have to Mashiach concerning their wife. And men will take the you know you're you're submitting to my authority, and I'm submitting to no one, right? And that turns can turn into a very abusive relationship instead of recognizing a hierarchy that is, once again, you are commissioned by Mashiach and your duty is to Mashiach. And Mashiach is not going to countenance this stuff of abuse and all this other stuff, right? Make sense? So thanks, Dina. Now, next week, ask a more difficult question so that we can really get all tied up in knots here. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. P. <laughs> Thanks, Tina. Okay, let's go to Heather. Heather, how are you? Hi, Dr. P. How are you? Very good. Good to see you. Oh, Chris, oh and Chris, that was great work. I, that, I had to take some deep breaths after that, and I really look forward to seeing the scripture with new eyes. But today, my question for you, Dr. P, is um, I was in Colossians, and I found... Um, we're 11 and Yahusha, which is called um, Iustus, I-U-S-T-U-S. Uh -huh. I've not heard that before. Is that another name that he's known for? Yeah, yeah. The uh, In the typical English Bibles, it would be justice. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, yeah makes and, sense. Yeah, and actually, no, this is a, a different person, right? This is a different person. And uh, yeah, and so we've dealt with this issue uh, very carefully because, of course, we, we assume that the New Testament, you know, what, what's going on with the Sefer is that we believe that the New Testament was conceived in Hebrew, but translated into Greek, at least in its first inception. And so as a consequence, we look at these words as they appear in the Greek and we translate them, transliterate them back to their Hebrew term. So you're talking about somebody here. Now, what's the passage in, in, in Colossians again? One. A 4.11. A 4.11. Okay, there we go. So in 4.11, we see that uh, 4.11. So it reads that in Yahusha, which is called Eustace, justice. There was no J back then, right? Now, in the, in the Greek there, you see the name Iesus, and Iesus, who was called Iestus, right, or Iestus, and so he was, he is distinguished from, he's distinguished from Yah, from Yahusha, even though he had the same name, he was called Justice, and so this is how you read it in, in the English Bibles, it's, the name is Justice, and it's a different person, it's not Iesus Mashiach, it's just another fellow traveler, right, and he was traveling with he was traveling with again here we see this right beginning in, in verse seven all my state shall Tychicus declare unto you right who is beloved brother faithful minister fellow servant in Yahweh whom I've sent to you with the same purpose he might know your estate comfort your hearts with Onesimus right Onesimus is the one who wrote Philemon because he was the slave who had escaped his slave master a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you they shall make known unto you all things that are done here Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, salute and you. Also, thank you very much. And also, in that same, at the end of that chapter, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry, ask, you're freezing up. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Heather. Uh, yeah, you are kind of freezing up a little bit, but you have another question about the end of the chapter. Yes, thank you. Um, at the end of the chapter, yes. Well, actually, in 16, and with when this sefer is read among you, cause that it be read also in the assembly of Laodicans, and that ye likewise read the sefer from, is there is there another, is it referring to another letter? Um, no, it's referring to this one, but when you, the Laodikians, what we discovered was what we have been pronouncing as Laodicea is an incorrect pronunciation. It's not Laodicea, it's Laodikea, Laodikea. And so the, so read among you costs that to be read also in the assembly of the Laodikeans and that you likewise read the Sefer from Laodikea. Okay, so the Sefer from Laodikea does refer to a different one, an epistle to the Laodikeans which doesn't exist. Now, even though you have this reference here, you have this reference here to this epistle, Marcion did create a sefer to the Alexandrians, a sefer to the Laodikeans, but they were forged documents. They were forgeries. He wrote them. And we see some of this today present too. Like people say, oh, I've got the book of Gad and it's, you know, it's a forged copy. And, uh, and because it has no uh, indicia of its own uh, creation, but rather just borrows phrases from other books. So whether or not is there an epistle to the Laodikeans? Yeah, there was, but we don't have it. We don't have that copy. It's a very good catch of yours. It's one of many books in scripture that are mentioned, and we don't have the book of Gad, the book of Nathan, the book of War, the book of Edo. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, but we don't have these books, even though they're mentioned in scripture. And in many cases, I mean, we, there's been people who have spent their whole lifetime looking for these books and have been unable to find them. And uh, so who knows what happened to this Sefer to the Laodikeans? Hard yeah. to say, right? Thank you so much. So two very quick things, and I promise it'll be fast. So yesterday I'm speaking um, low. I Actually, Thursday night, I invited my roommate to listen to you on, um, on YouTube. Um, and uh, he said, no, that's okay. I do Bible study at my church, Catholic. And then I said, well, this is probably gonna be a little bit different. You might wanna join. He said, no. And then he also asked me, why don't I find a church locally? And I thought, I don't know how to answer that, but just because this is just so rich and you bless us so much. And I just love this group. And every day being the word, learning so much and even from the telegram groups and it's just so wonderful. I, I wouldn't even want to step foot in a church. <laughs> well, right now, I, I am fearful of stepping into a church. I'll tell you, there's, uh, you know, uh, the the churches. I mean, I, I don't want to go in because, you know, first of all, I have tried to try to dress incognito, which is kind of hard for me to do anymore to, to show up. Yeah, hey, it's me. Or ignore me. I've got this ball cap on, you know. And uh, uh, but even when I go into the churches, I just, you know, I, I, the last church I went, went into, they immediately recognized me and the pastor started an assault on me right from the pulpit. Anybody who tells you this stuff, rebuke them, rebuke them. And he's rebuking me openly in the church. So I confronted him in the hallway after that. I said, I'm going to ask you something. Uh, is it your position that everything that happened prior to the crucifixion was nailed to the cross? Yes, it is. So he nails all of the gospels to the cross, right? And 
since that day, by the way, his church has absolutely imploded. At that time, they had about 5,000 members. Now they're down to about 500. Their church just detonated and imploded because it had no grace of Yah in it at all. It was just a rock and roll club is what it was that met on Sunday morning. And, you know, and so the thing is that with a lot of these churches, you'll find that you go in, if you go in now, you're, you're going to sit down and you're going to immediately see, oh, okay, here comes the hypnotism before the tithe is, you know, collected, right? Let's sing 20 minutes of I Surrender All, and then you guys get your wallet out because think about it. <laughs> Once you guys have heard enough gospel messages from me, you too can own a Ferrari and have, you know, uh, 10,000 shares in Microsoft. And, uh, you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, it, when you see that stuff and then, you know, the questions that are disallowed, you can never ask the pastor. You can never ask, well, didn't the tithe get nailed to the cross? Was that a, was that a, a lot of, oh, you're done. The elders will show you to the door if you ever ask that question in church. And, you know, and so there's just things that you, you can't say you can't do. And then the, the questions you have. Like I went to a, I went to an Easter service, I don't know, seven years ago. And the pastor, I guess, knew I was coming because he teaches on the, his sermon was uh, respecting the Sabbath. And he gives this long sermon about respecting the Sabbath. And then we'll see you next Sunday. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like he gives lip service to the, to the gospel, but he does not perfect the gospel. He does not perfect scripture. And so, you know, what I would say to you is this. First of all, we're not called into a building, right? It was Stephen who said, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Where will you house me? Right? Says Yahweh. Where will you house mm -hmm. me? And so we're called to a different kind of kehila, a different congregation, a different assembly. It's an assembly that meets in homes. It's an assembly that meets discreetly and privately and it can, can meet among believers anywhere. It, it's not marked by a Egyptian obelisk spire in the front or Roman dominion in the form of a cross on top. It's yeah. marked by us, the believers, the living stones of the temple. And so because of that, we have a responsibility, of course, but the beauty of it is, guess what? The yoke is easy and the burden is light. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. Thanks Thanks yeah. for your testimony today, sister. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, let's go to Joy. Joy, how are you? You got to unmute. Like, I need you to unmute. Hi, good. Brother Stephen. It's so yeah. good to finally talk to you in person. <laughs> All right, good to hear from you. We only just made you stand in line longer than you ever would anywhere else. <laughs> um, well, that's okay. I was referring back to when I think it was Chris, we were in the Gospel of Mark. We were talking about the fig tree. Yeah. And we were talking about the leaves shooting forth. I took it as that was kind of like when Israel became a nation again. And I don't know if that's right. But I got into looking about like Benjamin uh, Net high, how do you say his name? Netanyahu. Yeah, and Golda Meir. They really weren't Hebrew. They were from like Louisiana or Georgia or Russia. And they changed their names to Hebrew names. And so I was wondering when you get to Revelation, when you're talking about the Church of Smyrna and you're talking about. Um, the synagogue of the Satan. Church of, 
Yeah, and you know, and then Smyrna talks about how you're going to be put into prison, but you won't be held more than 10 days, but you have to know who the synagogue of Satan is. And it talks about Jews saying that they don't lie or whatever, but could that be related? The synagogue of Satan, and then when Israel became a nation, it wasn't really Israelis that were on the top figure. They were from the Russia parts and Georgia. And, well, they were from many places, Central Europe yeah, uh, and, and Central Eastern Europe, and also from Spain and Morocco and Greece and Turkey. I mean, there were many people that called Sephardim that also expatriated to Israel uh, and who have been told for generations that they're Jews, right? They've been told for generations they're Jews and they practice Judaism. Judaism is not the faith of scripture. Judaism is the faith of the Talmud. And it was created outside of scripture. And so what you see with the synagogue of Satan, I mean, first of all, you have a couple of things happening. One is that the nation of Israel calls itself Israel inappropriately. Okay. It was not Israel that was recreated. It was Judea that was recreated. And they should have named the place Judea, because when they say Israel is for the Jews only, well, then what are they saying? It's Judea. It's not Israel. Israel is for all 12 tribes. But you have you have Jewish Israelism, just as you have British Israelism. You know? So you go into certain camps in Britain, all the tribes of Israel are British people. And then when you get to, then when you get to, uh, well, actually not all the tribes of Israel, those who confess Mashiach are now Israel. So you have to be of a specific Christian faith to be Israel. But in Israel, all Jews constitute all 12 tribes. So if you find somebody from Naphtali, they're called a Jew. If you call somebody from Dan, they're called a Jew. If you call somebody from Levi, who many of the Central Europeans call themselves children of Levi. Right. Levi, right. That they're, they're, not, they're suddenly called Jews. Well, and then Netanyahu said repeatedly, Israel is for Jews only. So if you come in and prove you're of the house of Joseph, by the way, Joseph is the one who had the birthright to the land, not the Jews. First Chronicles 5.1. But if you call, you call and you say, well, I'm of the house of Joseph, well, you're not welcome here because you're not Jewish. And, you know, they have the Jewish agency and then they have Nefesh Benefesh. Nefesh Benefesh, to get entry into Israel, you have to denounce Mashiach. If you try, if you make Aliyah through Nefesh to Nefesh, the Jewish agency will still allow for you to come in into the tenets of the law in, in Israel, which is that you can prove either that you're of a Jewish religion or you can prove a Jewish identity, which usually means that you can show descent to somebody killed in the Holocaust. And so those are the things that see that's a different entry level, right? And it doesn't. So if you can prove that, then you have the right to be a Mashiachim. You have the right to follow Mashiach. But this is what we deal with in Israel. And Benjamin Netanyahu, who was, who was a furniture salesman in Pittsburgh before he went to Israel to become Netanyahu. And Netanyahu is the name his dad took. And it, I think his last name is actually oh, oh, Wyckowski. Benji. And, his first name. Yeah, but the, but the thing is, Netanyahu means the gift of Yah. And it's right. very clear. I mean, here you have Netanyahu, who knew very well that the name of Yah was Yahoo, not Yeho. It's not Netanyahu. It's Netanyahu. Why? Because they all knew because Yahoo appears on everybody's name. So it, the pronunciation is never Yehovah. 
It was always Yahuwah. And so uh, anyway, but when we talk about the synagogue of Satan, you have people who are, they were converted to Judaism, like the Bauer family, who call themselves the Red Shield, the Rothschild family. They call themselves the Red Shield, Rothschild. They're actually the Bauer family, and they were converted to Judaism by the Pope. And the Pope converted them to Judaism because they needed money lenders. And the Jews could lend money, money at usury to non-Jews, whereas in the Christian church, for centuries, usury was absolutely prohibited. And in many common law states in the United States, there's still laws on the books criminalizing usury, with the exception of your credit card, which can charge you 35%, right? Which is more than any mob boss would ever even dare to charge you. But at any rate, you see that, uh, so we talk about the synagogue of Satan. These are name changers, people who change their names and in order to the, assume the identity of someone else for purposes of profit and exploitation. And what has happened in Israel is that Israel has kept the house of Israel from returning to the promised land. You can't come here. We're here and you can't come here. You see? And so the house yeah. of Israel, and in particular, the birthright of Joseph is being denied right now, but it's not going to be denied forever. And it just is, it is what it is. But, you know, um, you know, I'm not going to get into, you know, I don't want to get into calling everybody Kazarian mafia. The main no, thing you have I to remember is that. that. But here's something that you can consider, Joy. In the Jewish Encyclopedia of 1909, the Jewish Encyclopedia of 1909 says specifically that the Jews of Central Europe are the house of Esau. Okay. This is what it says in the Jewish Encyclopedia, that the Jews of Central Europe were the house of Esau. And you can look okay. it up for yourself. And when you realize that, you realize that what we have here is we have this inherent jealousy of Esau, who did not get the birthright from his father, Yitzhak. It went to exactly. Yaakov, and he has been usurping the birthright of Yaakov ever since by any means. And part of that is co-opting the Torah of Moshe, which gives the birthright. It tells us very clearly who the birthright belongs to. And they co-opt that, and they co-opt it by saying this is no longer the era of the Torah. This is the era of the Talmud. It's no longer the teaching of Yah contained in Scripture. It's the teaching of our rabbis telling you what that means right right so i mean that's the best answer i can give you for the time being joy okay okay thank you okay dr p blessings to dr. you dr p yes uh there are some people that have um been picked off can you put them back on if they're still there thank you yeah jessica's trying to get on yeah i've got her she she must be riding around in the irish countryside <laughs> there's somewhere around somewhere around Derry. Thank you. So when she gets there, make sure you, you tell Jessica that I said, catch yourself on there. <laughs> okay. All right. So Joy, thank you. Blessings to you. Let's go to Randall. Randall, how are you, brother? Hey, bro. I'm doing all right. You, uh, are you in, uh, up in Alaska now or are you in some undisclosed location? <laughs> I'm in an undisclosed location back in Alaska. Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, because uh, I came across this the other day, um, I was just wondering, 
if if maybe you or maybe Doug could chime in on this or anybody else who studies the Maseroth about when the, all the planets line up. Now I know there's a word for that. It starts with a C, and it's just on the tip of my tongue, but I can't think of it. Um, but you you know what I'm talking about? A planetary alignment, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a word for it, and I just starts with a C. I can't think of it. Yeah, it, it's called uh, synergy. Huh? Synergy. Uh, conjunction. Yeah, the, conju no, wait, no, the conjunction is called, wait a minute, I'm trying to think of it in just a minute. It's something, it's like synergy. It's called a, um, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll think about it and I'll come up with the word. I just wonder um, what, the, maybe what's the significance of that is. I mean, because, you know, we look at. The well, it means, you know, it gives us a sign in the heaven, Randall. You know, I mean, you know, right. you know John Reed Austin is teaching the Maserot on Sefer Academy, you know, and he's doing a very good job, by the way, of teaching it. But when you're talking about um, when you're talking about a planetary alignment, the key thing about the planetary alignment that I think that Doug was bringing up earlier is that the planets are not going to be seen; they're all on the other side of the Earth that can only be seen during the day. So when the blood moon shows up at night as the only luminary among among those planets, is that this means that uh, it's a foreboding. To the earth there's no mitigation from another planet like jupiter or saturn or mars whatever it's just this warning sign it's kind of red light if you will in the sky with no mitigation and i think that's the point he's making now planetary alignment in terms of it having an effect on what goes on on earth uh is uh is i'm not, I'm not sure how relevant it is how much it's going to have any kind of major effect maybe somebody's got something else on it but I don't see it as being that could have a yeah. meaning for, you know, yeah. it, I mean, I know that it happens exactly. The, it happens periodically where they all line up. I just didn't know if there was, a, if there was a reason. It does happen. It does happen periodically. And, you know, it's like a full moon happens periodically. And a lot of people think we're, werewolves come out on the full moon. You know, there, I mean, there are tidal effects that happen from the full moon. There's certainly a biorhythm that happens from the full moon. But uh, in terms of the planetary alignment, I don't think there is a direct impact on Earth other than giving a sign. Remember, Genesis 1.14 tells us that we can use the sun, the moon, and the stars also, right? The greater light, the lesser light, and the stars also for signs. And then when you get to Revelation 12, it says, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven with the sun, the moon, and the stars. So here you have Revelation uh, 12, 1, telling you that the sun and the moon and the stars are giving a sign. And Genesis 1, 14 says you are to use the greater light, the lesser light, and the stars also for signs, right? Yeah, so all of these things do add up. But I was coming at it with is, you know, you have the sign of, um, you, had the, you had the Revelation sign where um, the planets lined up to uh, form the uh, crown. I think it was. Uh, yeah. yeah, that wasn't, yeah. There were some planets involved in that in the stars of Leo that constituted 12 stars in the crown. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was part of it. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, but I mean, again, this is, you know, the idea that there is something, a sign given in Virgo or a sign given in Libra or whatever. These are not, uh, gee, this means that you're, you know, your half moon rising is going to change your personality from being asymptomatic to, uh, you know, uh, uh, enigmatic and despotic, right? I mean, that's, that's you know, astrological mumbo-jumbo as compared to setting the logic of the stars, astrology, 
and the law of the stars, which is astronomy, astronomos, the law of the stars, astrologos, the logic of the stars. Okay. Yeah. I always thought that, you know, if, if we're supposed to use the, the sun and the stars to basically dictate time, we are. That, that Yah would set it up so that all those planets would line up perfectly from the sun all the way to Pluto. You know, Randall, if you had only been the creator, we'd have had that in place. I know, right? <laughs> I don't know. I probably would have messed it up. We're going to have to wait. We're going to wait for the, for the next time that creation is going to come about. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> uh, you know, um, it, it, it would be nice. It would be nice, Randall, if we could. It, it would be nice if, if the creation fit into our package. But it doesn't. And our responsibility, and it was the responsibility of science until we get to Darwin, to ask the question, what has Yah done? And then to try to reach that answer. After we get to Darwin, it's like assuming there is no God, we've concluded there is no God. Now let's see if we can figure out the universe from there. And that's now a litmus test for all scientists. You must deny God or you cannot proceed in science. You must swallow the evolution pill whole or you cannot proceed in science. Just watch a Ben Stein's movie, Expelled, and you'll see the whole truth of that. And so when somebody comes to me and says, trust the science, trust you God deniers, you Yahweh deniers, trust you? Why would I trust you? You can't even see the fundamental premise of creation. And yet I'm supposed to trust the science? Let me tell you, the first premise of science is don't trust the science, right? right? This guy claimed this is the scientific truth. Okay, well, let's challenge that in an experiment and see if we can come up with something new. Science never achieves truth. It only achieves theory, right? You have, first of all, you have to have an, uh, an hypothesis. You have no scientific inquiry without a hypothesis. You have to have an hypothesis. And in order for it to be a hypothesis, a bona fide one, it has to be capable of being the answer being determined by experiments. If no experiment is possible, like, gee, man was created out of goo, what experiment are you going to perform that's going to prove that? There is none. Therefore, it's not a hypothesis. It's just rhetoric. It's got no part of science at all. It's faith. It has no part of science. So if you have a hypothesis, then you have to have an experiment. And it has to be a controlled experiment according to very rigorous standards. And, and other scientists have to replicate the same results you got over and over and over and over again so that you can achieve what? Synthesis which leads to theory. It doesn't lead to truth. It doesn't lead to a fact. It leads right. to the, if you have a hypothesis, you have the hypothesis of the higher hypothesis, and then you have synthesis, right? Hypothesis, thesis, th synthesis, and, and the result of the synthesis is theory, not fact. So the whole nature of science is to challenge the science. You remember when Al Gore told us, <coughs> it's settled fact. New York is going to be under 15 feet of water in 2010. That's a fact. There's no use debating it. There's no having any discussion about it. Trust the science. Every We've got 400 scientists who have signed on and agreed New York's going to be under 15 feet of water in 2010. Then 2010 came around. Then 2020 came around, and New York's still not under 15 feet of water. Gee, Al, hmm, maybe the science wasn't as settled as you said it was. In well, fact, maybe you were lying like a rug. He wasn't talking about the New York here. He was talking about another New York in the multiverse. 
Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. In the metaverse, yeah, I forgot about that. He was talking about that the New York in that in that one game. Uh, what is it? Uh, Call of Duty. That was it. There was a New York there that came underwater in 2010. Yeah, in the multiverse. Um, right. <laughs> you know, it, it's it is imagination. Yeah, exactly. Um, hey, it's, you know, if you just look at the theory of, of evolution, it shows you how easily we get indoctrinated, or how people get indoctrinated with something, because ever since it came out. They've been, it's just been put into every single aspect. Well, I want to remind you that the book that Darwin wrote, its official title is The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Preferred Races in the Struggle for Life. Okay, so let's make no bones about it. Darwin's book is racist dogma from beginning to end. And this is what is taught in the schools. And they claim, well, you need to know, you're, you're, you know, you're a racist, you're a racist. Well, how did I become a racist? By studying the racist doctrine of Darwin. You know, when my son went through high school, he was taking AP biology and he was doing excellent until they got to evolution. And the teacher told him, you will answer these questions this way or you will flunk the class, period, period. So it's not just, it, this is not just uh, scientific inquiry. This is dogma. Mm-hmm. It's a different religion. It's an atheist, satanic religion, worshiping another God that has yeah. been exalted by the people who follow Charles Darwin. And this is the scientific community that we're supposed to trust. Sorry, I'm not doing it. I don't trust them farther than I could throw them. Although Fauci, I guess, is pretty small. You could throw him a long way if you, if you ever needed to do that. You ask just about anybody, ask, ask them how old the Earth is, and they'll all pretty much say, well, it's billions of years old. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love, the, I love the guys. Billions and billions of years ago. You know, when I ever hear these guys talk about this, historians talk about it, I just start taking it. I get out my razor and start shaving off the zeros on the back of their numbers. You know, 10,000 years ago, you mean 1,000 years ago. 1,000 years ago. 50,000 years ago, you mean 5,000 years ago, right? Just shave the zero off. They're just, they're just blowing chunks at the moon, you know. I mean, they don't know what they're talking about. And uh, so anyway, but but thank you, Randall. Thank, thanks for that inquiry. Okay, brother? I'm going. Oh, yeah, yeah, you too. Okay, David, how are you? I don't think we've heard from you before, David. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you, yeah. Oh, praise you. I, uh, this is my first uh, time on the meeting, Zoom meeting, and that's pleasing. I'm just uh, excited about it. Uh, Myself and two other brothers prayed about uh, having an increase in unity, and uh, you happened to come up. I thought, uh, well, we'll chase that. So I listened to uh, a whole bunch of your uh, videos since you've grown the beard. And, it really, uh, really uh, enjoyed it. I, it had me glued to the set, you know, and I'm, uh, I have a, uh, you know, I, I've got this, this question. It's kind of a, a statement and a question together that um, the two sticks in Ezekiel, uh, Ephraim and Yehuda, I see as uh, the two sons that one that, that blew his uh, inheritance and the other one that stayed home, but is in the field acting like a servant. I see Yehuda as a natural olive branch uh, that the wild olive branch Ephraim is grafted into, is grafted in. They come together. 
to be one. And at, after, after uh, Ephraim comes home, Ephraim is met far off and uh, escorted to the house. And then when he comes in the house, he receives the robe and the ring, and it really twists off Yehuda in the field acting like a servant. Now, he comes up, and they get, they get unified together and made one stick after that. And we see the result of that in Revelation chapter 7 and uh, the 12,000, 12, uh, in my view. I've known myself as Ephraim uh, for uh, 20 years. I came out of Christianity uh, 20 some odd years ago and did a stint through uh, rabbinic and messianic Judaism to see the veil upon their faces. And but I do see F, F, uh, it's, I think it's uh, Eliezer Ben Yehuda that uh, taught his children to speak Hebrew with the promise that he would see uh, the nation born again. That's right, it was Ben Yehuda, that's correct. And, and I see that as a, as a move of Yahuwah. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't, you know, for me to separate who's a fraud and who's not a fraud and who say they're a Yahudim, there's a certain vexation that's coming from Yehuda that comes uh, that will be put an, an end will be put to that Yehuda promises. Uh, yeah, I think I'm, you're I'm right thrilled, about I'm that. thrilled about that. I'm yeah, thrilled about that coming. I, yeah, I know what I know what you're saying. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about who the tribes are, right? Because really, none of it can be proven. I mean, we can we can look and we can see suggestions about who's who. We can see historical artifacts. We can see other markers throughout time that indicate where the tribes have gone, where the tribes have moved. But to be able to say, "Oh well, I've got the DNA, and I know," as do many of the Jews, I can prove my DNA back to Aaron. They can't. There's no DNA sample from the first century. There's no DNA sample from the 10th century BC. There's no DNA sample. And so they have, this is mine and I'm louder. I'm the, I'm the squeak, I'm more squeaky wheel than anybody else. Therefore I'm of Jewish blood. Well, that's one way of putting it, but I don't think it's necessarily true. But I think what you, and I wanna, I wanna make this point to you, David, because when you look closely at that passage in Romans 11, okay? It's very clear that Paul says, as the natural branches were stripped off the tree, so you grafted in branches can be stripped off the tree. Do not boast yourself above the natural branches because you too can be stripped off. But the tree was completely stripped off. All the branches were stripped off. There is no Yashareli, there is no Israeli that is not grafted in, whether you're of the house of Judah or the house of Ephraim or any other house. You have to be grafted back into that root. You have to, and you're grafted back into that root by your confession and by no other means. So, may I say something? If I may say, uh, hold on what, a second, Rob. If, if I may say that what he was saying about the body uh, and uh, it having the conflict, I certainly see that. But we didn't, we didn't just not take uh, the body to the uh, to be immersed and the circumcision of the flesh made without hands and not involve the body. And so in that, in yeah. that, in that must do covenant act, 
the body has had the circumcision of the flesh made without hands removed. The circumcision of the heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a big yeah. deal concerning the body and concerning the traffic that goes through the body. For us yeah. to be able to manifest the, 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 the mind of Messiah and resist the carnal mind is our portion. We can resist the carnal mind by the word of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb, and I know Yahuwah comes for that. And that's a, that's very yeah. important to me. Yeah, I mean, those those are very good words, David, and and I agree with that. I mean, and I think your analysis of the Ezekiel thirty six passage of the, the the two sticks coming together and so forth, I think that's also a, a very good point of view. But I just want to make sure that it's clear when we talk about Romans eleven, there were no natural branches on the tree. I, I see that. I, I see that, especially especially after the Barcopa revolt, and they disappeared, and the language died. The language slam died. That wasn't a live language. But Amen. Amen. That's true. Language. A language was restored, and and these people come trucking back into the land, whether they're whether they're authentic or whether they weren't. And the ones in the, the the Samaritan woman that we understand that they're still there from a long long time ago with the with the uh, the Paleo Hebrew version and so there's yeah, that's right and it's the same thing with the Dru with the Druze too right the Druze yeah. that live up on Mount Carmel I mean they may very well be a, a, the the true tribe of Judah in Israel the Druze right and they do not allow anybody marrying in you can't be a Druze woman and marry somebody who's non Druze if you do you're out of the Druze community. You can't be a Druze man and marry some non-Druze woman. If you do, you're out of the community. It's strictly Druze. And the Druze have, they have some loyalty to the Israeli state, but it's not definitive. I mean, they fought and fought ferociously on behalf of Israel. But not every time. There's times when they disagree with the nation of Israel and they will not do anything. And the Druze have a very interesting, you know, the Druze believe in reincarnation, right? And they have, so they've got a very, so, you know, you have these groups, you have these Egyptians that call themselves Palestinians. You have Bedouins who've been indigenous in the land. You have Samaritans who've been indigenous in the land. And you have Druze who have been indigenous in the land. And you have Syrians who have been indigenous in the land before the Central European Jews ever came back in. Now, you know, the Rothschild family was responsible for the creation of the state of Israel. It's very clear. They built the Supreme Court building in Jerusalem. And you can see Jacob Rothschild's picture standing right there with uh, uh, Simone Perez, Shimon Perez. And they built that temple as a Masonic temple that was antithetical to Christianity. Literally, the judges walked up 32 steps on an upside down cross to ascend to their judicial chambers in that building. There's a pyramid sitting over the 31, 32nd, and 33rd layer of the library. I've, I've been in this building. So there's no question that uh, the Rothschild family may or may not be Jewish. Shimon Perez may or may not be Jewish. Netanyahu may or may not be Jewish. Doesn't mean that many of the people who live there are non-Jews. I think many of those people are Jews and people who, and people who came from Central uh, uh, Europe and people who came from Spain and came from Morocco and Turkey and Greece, probably Jews. I mean, they've been told for generations that they're Jewish, so they're probably Jews. Okay, hallelujah. But there are some frauds in that group. There are some people who are Kazarian mafia, who are just banksters, and uh, who don't have any 
uh, propriety, any good things for humanity whatsoever. And uh, so, it, yeah, so it's something for us to be discerning about. It's We're not supposed to be sitting here denouncing Jews. We are supposed to be very cautious, however, about what we're talking about. And when you have Christian pastors like John Hagee forming Christians United for Israel, you know, those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. Well, just hold on a minute. That's talking about the house of Yasharel, not some Latter-day nation state that's misnamed, right? Yeah. It's, it's like the Christian pastor who suddenly comes out and says, I'm the warehouse that's named in Malachi 4. So everybody give your money to me because I'm the, how, well, how did you become the warehouse? Well, I went to seminary yeah. and, I, and I, I established a 501c3. So now I'm the warehouse. So everybody, you know, I'm the storehouse in Malachi 4. Everybody bring your money to me, right? Yeah. And then they take the money that is the tithe offering of the saints and spend it on themselves whether it's a personal jet or a big house or a yacht or whatever it might be, self-aggrandizing themselves and self-aggrandizing their ego while they build up some artificial Babylonian artifice that they call a mega church at the expense of the people who are giving, whose kids may be going hungry, whose bills may not be getting paid, who may be evicted from their home and now living homeless. And does the church go out and see how many of their members are now living in a tent? Nope. They don't do that. Well, they might open up a token food bank. I appreciate that, Stephen. I do. I, and and uh, you're pointing out a whole lot of things that are false flags that uh, are being waved at people, and pe people are following like a, like a bunch of blind following the blind. But uh, our portion is to know the truth and, and to be set free by the truth that we know. Amen. And so we have, we have a promise of, uh, of deceptive <laughs> difference between the two. And that promise I rely on with all my heart. And so yeah, I want to say this is a, a real pleasure to me. And I'm looking forward to what you was going to do in the future. And uh, Shabbat Shalom. Yeah, Shabbat Shalom, David. Good to have you with us, brother. So stay with us. Eh? We'll see you next week, hopefully, with Yah's yes, blessing. Okay. All right. We've got just a few minutes left. Let's go to Jessica. Jessica, how are you? Um, hi. Can you see me? Yeah, there you are. Hi, how are you? Um, I'm okay. I'll try. I'm good. I'll try and make this not too long. Um, I think I just will share my experience because I, I, was, I wasn't going to say anything. And then I heard everybody talking about, well, everything that was being spoken about. But, you know, the falling from grace and what Rob was talking about, the flesh and so I just want to give an experience I had. Because, you know, um, we had a Shabbat in December where my car got flooded. Do you remember that? And I do remember that, yeah. And almost yeah. got hit by the tree, but it didn't. Yes, yeah. So um, about, about a week or two after that happened, and just before I say this, just to say, I'm just sharing my experience. I'm not making any judgments about anybody else. But, um, you know, I'm with a sort of a, a with the Hebrew Roots Torah Observant Fellowship. And one of the sisters came to me and uh, basically what I what I got from what she was saying to me was that they had had a conversation and they were praying um, about why my car got flooded and they were wondering if it had anything to do with um, me not keeping the Sabbath properly 
And then she went on to say that they didn't think it was because I, I had to go and feed my horses in the morning. And again, well, in the evening, it's already sunset. So that doesn't really count. But she said that the problem probably wasn't that, that it's okay to care for your animals, but that maybe it was that the journey was too long and I shouldn't be, I was driving too far to care for my animals. And I felt really condemned and it wasn't uh, like, at first I, at first I thought, well, I'm just gonna be really humble and I'm gonna go to Yah and pray about it. So, and I, I, you know, I thanked her for her input and I thanked them for praying for me. But when I came away, what, what they didn't know was that that Shabbat in particular, I had really prepared really well on the preparation day. I had like, I had pre-cooked everything and, you know, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to go feed the horses and come home and I won't literally have to do another thing except just study in the Bible. So anyway, to cut a very long story Amen. short, <laughs> I was praying about it and I was led to scriptures and if I put into words, it's that the most important thing is, is trust and that faith is trust. Like if you think about why did Adam and Eve sin? You know, they sinned because they didn't trust Yah's word. They, they sinned because, you know, Hasatan was able to tell them one thing and they actually didn't say, no, 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 no. You know, Yah told us that we're not to eat from that tree and we trust Yah. So there was, for me, what Yah was telling me because of, I know how I was on the preparation day before, was that like, I have to be balanced because I'm not, I'm not saved by my own works. And, you know, I have to trust in what Yahushua did for me on the cross and not. Yes. And you have to do this without, without uh, the condemnation of friends. All right. Now there's several things. I mean, one is, is that, Sometimes, you know, scripture says it rains on the just and the unjust. Okay. So just because your car got flooded and you had these things happen, you know, your car was also miraculously rescued that the tree did not hit it. Right. And so you, so you had a number of things happening there that were really, one was the hand of Yacht covering you. The other was, you know, adverse events that take place on the earth that happens to the just and the unjust. Now, Maybe your sisters in the fellowship are saying, well, look, you know, because my suspicion is you work five days a week and your only I time to feed your horses is on Saturday. Is that correct? No, I, I have to. I do work. I do work five days a week, sometimes only four days. But um, <clears throat> I have a horse that isn't well and I can't just leave her out. She needs you know, she needs specific. She needs medicine. particular care. So the horse is not well, which needs to have particular care. So the Torah is very clear about being able to help animals. You can rescue your ox out of a ditch, for instance, 
on Shabbat. It's very clear. And that does not violate Shabbat. There is nothing in the Torah that says you can only drive so far, or only walk so far on Shabbat. There's no, that's Talmud. That's not Torah. The Talmud, the Mishnah imposes this. You can only go a Sabbath day's walk. In fact, the gospel is very clear when Mashiach heals the man by spitting in the mud. The Talmud forgets, forbids spitting in the mud and creating clay on the Sabbath. That's one of the things it forbids. And it also forbids a greater than a Sabbath day walk. And Mashiach spits in the mud, makes mud, and then puts it on the guy's eyes and he is healed. Then he says, walk down there and tell him. Well, he had to walk farther than a Sabbath day's walk to the synagogue to tell him. And then he walked back, right? So he violated that distance rules at the express uh, instruction of the Shiach, who also violated the Shabbat by healing on the Shabbat, which he said it is lawful to do well on the Shabbat. So when, you know, this is something that you have to weigh in your own heart, Jessica, but you know, if you're there by necessity to help your animals, then that's what you're doing. And your friends who want to condemn you for that, you know, just think about this. When you were being condemned for that, think of how Mashiach felt when he was confronted by the Pharisees who wanted to kill him for it, right? And this is something that we get in our faith journey. We see it all the time in this group, is that when you were walking in, in the path of the Christian church, walking through the broad gate with all the brothers and sisters, there was no condemnation. But the instant you get on the narrow path, suddenly you're hated by your brothers and sisters, by your mother, by, by your father, by your friends. You're isolated. You're cut off. You're cast out. We're not talking to you anymore. You know, uh, you know you've fallen from grace. People stare at you and give you weird looks. And all of a sudden, you're being persecuted. All of a sudden, you're experiencing exactly what Yahusha said you were going to experience. All of a sudden, you're experiencing that. Now, if you're all of a sudden experiencing it, that should tell you something. You're on the right path. It's narrow. There's a wall of fire on one side and an ocean on the other, and the winds are howling, trying to blow you off that path. But we go down that path one person at a time. Yeah, you, don't, you, don't carry, you don't carry your husband with you. You don't carry your mother with you. You don't carry your father with you. You don't carry your children with you. It's one person at a time. And so because of that, trust in Yah. Believe what he is doing. And recognize that that thing that happened with your car being flooded, that's one side of the story. The other side of the story is that the tree missed your car, miraculously missed your car because Yah intervened. And Yah intervened because he did not see you as violating the Shabbat. He saw you as being a proper steward of the, the animal control that he gave you. So it's a very important point, Jessica. Okay? Yeah. Um, and and just to to say about the about the I suppose there's some things that because you know the law of Moses and I guess the thing that comes up for me a lot is that Yahusha said that the, that Moses allowed them to have a certificate of divorce, of divorce because, yeah. because of the hardness of their hearts and he said that you know that Moses you know, that we heard it said that an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Uh, but I'm telling you that you're not to resist evil. Basically, he also says, you know, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, but I'm telling you that you shall not, you should not even feel anger 
without cause. Which tells you that Moshe's Torah, number one, contradicted a pre-existing Torah. Straight out. Mashiach says, in the beginning, it was not so. Moshe gave you new law. Ezekiel says, Moshe gave you bad law in some cases. It's very clear that the animal sacrifices were given by Moshe. Why? Because they wanted to worship a golden calf. They couldn't get Egypt out of their system. So Yah gave them animal sacrifices. You want to worship animals? We're going to give you animal sacrifice. These things were happening. This was Yah's judgment. However, the Torah is completed in Mashiach. This is why you cannot say the Torah of the five books of Moshe. The instruction is the entirety of scripture. This is what Paul tries to tell us. The instruction is the entirety of scripture, not just Moshe's Torah. And we know if you watch my show that I did Thursday night on uh, Meki a Sarath, Moshe was told to make a Sarath, and instead he disobeyed and made a symbol of his authority. And when you look at it just in bald terms, Aaron sinned by making a golden calf, but Moshe engraved a brass serpent. Think about that for a minute. You know, Aaron did a golden calf, but Moshe gave us a brass serpent, which was worshipped as an idol until the time of Uzziah or Hezekiah. You know, that was you know almost 800 years this thing was worshipped. And so when you see that, this was grievous against Yah. It was grievous against Yah. A banner is one thing. A serpent on a pole is another. But it was something that was supposed to happen because it was, it was foretelling that Mashiach would be lifted up. And pierced like the serpent was, right? So with that, Jessica, I'm going to let you go because we're going to wrap it up. We're a little bit over time here. Thank you, sister, for rejoining us today and sharing your testimony. Give our blessings to your fellowship, okay? All right. And let them know that you were blessed that day, not cursed. You were blessed that day and not cursed, okay? Okay, brothers and sisters, let's pray, and then we'll call it a day. So we give thanks, Father. For this Sabbath, thank you for being with us. Thank you for blessing us in this time. Thank you for your spirit being present, that we could extend our love for one another in this fellowship, and that we would be a community, a community that is without arrows and without spears and without swords, but is with instead the lifting up of one another. We give thanks for that, Yahweh. So we bless you now in the name of Yahusha. Amen. Okay, Shabbat Shalom, my friends. We'll see you next. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. 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 Shabbat